I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Fantastic Four. It was the world's strangest accident. While testing a new rocket ship, our heroes were bombarded by mysterious cosmic rays from outer space. Though they crash-landed safely, the strange and powerful rays had changed each one of them, transforming their leader, Reed Richards, into the plastic-skinned Mr. Fantastic. Sue Richards into the Now You See Her, Now You Don't, Invisible Girl, and Ben Grimm into a mighty-muscled powerhouse called The Thing. Now, together with Herbie the Robot, the newest member of the group, they have become the greatest team of superheroes the world has ever known. The new Fantastic Four. We are recording this in late 2022, and with the MCU film currently set to a release date of 2025, there is no doubt that we will all be spending the time between now and then being told new production news, one grain of rice at a time. Whether we want to hear it or not, that's how the internet works. Every mackerel of information becomes a week's speculative news, articles, videos, and yes, podcasts. And the last time I did a show speculating on what Disney might do with a big acquisition, it was on Star Wars, and that show dated between recording and release. That was a matter of days. I was like, oh yeah, it's going to be Matthew Vaughn directing. Oh yeah, mark my words. <laughs> Don't mark my words. Okay. <laughs> so what we're going to do instead is to talk about the Fantastic Four in a way that we will still hopefully be entertaining and enlightening in three years' time, in ten years' time, in thirty years' time. Now, for our research, we went back to the source, Marvel World 616. That's comics, not movies and TV. And my God, when they make the new movies, they have to think so much harder about details than just giving the two primary best-known universes the same numerical designation out of every known number. We rewatched uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, and Mysterio is the first person to do it. He's like, your world is 616. And then somehow... In all dumbfoundedness, uh, Christine in the world with the Illuminati in Multiverse of Madness says, your world is 616. I'm like, how does she know that? Who decides these things? How, how could both of them get it wrong both times? I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's right. It's logically speaking, all of the numbering systems should be different. And the planet or world that came up with the numbering system should always be number one. Oh, we're number one. See everything everywhere all at once. You guys are, how that shit works. You guys are Earth A. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, who starts counting multiverses and then classes themselves as the 827th? Well, as far or whatever as... Whatever it was. Yeah. But, like, even within Marvel, for years before Spider-Man uh, Far From Home, there were many other alternate universes including the ultimate universe like that they actually abided in and dc have been doing this for a long long time mm -hmm. when you're making fantastic four you're writing reed richards as the smartest man in the world he needs to make tony stark look like a clever kid yeah like a clever kid ergo the script it needs to be written by someone who's smart as fuck because if it's dumb as balls it's not going to register and unfortunately, in the past, it's been dumb as balls. Yes. 
Because then you end up with an idiot's idea of a clever man. Mm. A, a man's uh, idea of a woman. A, an, an uncompassionate man's idea of a compassionate woman. Yep. And a man's idea of a hot shot and a big lug. No, we went back to the other 616. We read some of the all-time classic Fantastic Four stories. The, the issue 5 introduction to Doctor Doom. The return of Namor from the Golden Age. You didn't read this one, but I did. Mm. Okay. <laughs> It was early days, really early days. This is like issue three or four or something. Um, Johnny Storm storms off because uh, he's like, oh, I'm on fire. Ugh, this sucks. And this is, this is 1961. And he goes into a bar and he's like, either he's reading a comic or sees on TV Namor the Submariner, who in the 1940s in Marvel had been tooling around with Captain America fighting the Nazis. And he's like, oh, the Submariner. And then someone sort of points at the TV and goes, that no good, Nick Creep. He ain't been around here for 20 years. And then they turn around and go, oh, this guy, he's been in the bar for about 20 years. Let's just see who he is. And it's this sort of catatonic Asian-looking man. And Johnny's like, I'm just going to burn off your beard. And he burns off the beard of this Asian man who's just sort of sat there. And it's like, oh, it's the Submariner. And I'm like, Stan Lee, that's how you introduce him? Oh, it's going to be difficult for them to find the Submariner. Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. And then Namor sort of jumps up and goes, right, I'm going to kidnap your sister. And then runs off, grabs Sue Storm and runs into the sea with her. Because you singed the king of Atlantis's beard. <laughs> Black Panther Wakanda Forever did it better. Anyway. <laughs> Goodness sake. <laughs> Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The noble submariner drifts on the deep, swimming where he can be seen. The neighbor of Atlantis is the prince of the deep. There was oh, then we read the three-issue Coming of Galactus story, and honestly, I got a shiver when I first saw I saw the not Galactus for the first time, but the first ever panels introducing the Silver Surfer. Since, as we'll go into at some point later, we recently watched the Marvel animated series Silver Surfer, which is on Disney Plus, and almost no one saw. Everyone's so fixated on diddle 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 and radioactive. Spider-Man. No one saw The Silver Surfer. We finally did, and it's better than both of those shows. There, I said it. It's really good. Watch The Silver Surfer. But yeah, it, originally the coming of Galactus is just three issues. We also get the Watcher there. We also read the introduction of the Black Panther and Wakanda. Uh, this man, this monster. Basically, Jack Kirby and Stanley firing on all cylinders to jumpstart the Marvel Universe as we know it. And it may not have started the Silver Age, but it defined the Silver Age. So then we jumped forwards to the 1980s and John Byrne's Trial of Reed Richards, which was brain expanding. That's a single one-off issue. It's 
very good. Then 2001 and Grant Morrison's Dark Shakedown, one, two, three, four. Then on to Mark Wade's run and Unthinkable, where Doctor Doom went to his magician side. Then there are, these are two shortish stories where he tries and succeeds in hurting Marvel's first family. And finally, we dabbled in Jonathan Hickman and his crazy galaxy brain, which has never in the past worked for me because he tends to lose sight of the small scale and the personal. Uh, well, in the short three-book story, Solve Everything, and then End of the Line as an epilogue, he finally got to us. I actually shed tears in this one. And those are Reed-centric stories. So rather than Reed Richards just being the Cyclops of the group, and now oh, he's boring, no one cares, bring us more thing. This kind of needs to not so much start with Reed, but if you fail at Reed, you failed the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic is small scale and in italics rather than big with the chunky letters. Yeah. Specifically, I would say, if you approach it with the attitude of Reed is fine, he's just part of the foundations, we don't need to do anything with him. He's a good dude, he just doesn't pay enough attention to his wife. Yeah, that, if that's your only take, then you, you're leaving a whole load of stuff on the table. Now, you also may remember that back in 2015, School of Movies, as we had rechristened ourselves after being Digital Drift and then Digital Gonzo before that and Digital Cowboys before that, uh, School of Movies covered uh, the two Fantastic Four movies from the 2000s, directed by Tim Story. I think that was like at the practically on the cusp of when we transitioned over from uh, Drift to school. Uh, and to, to, to inform him about the whole Galactus thing, and she's like, you were dancing with girls at your bachelor party, dancing with them, disco style. And Reed goes, oh, honey, it didn't mean nothing. And she replies, oh, it's okay. It's nothing compared to what I did at my bachelorette party. You know what you did at your bachelorette party, Sue? We didn't see it, but I'm going to go ahead and guess you drank Crystal and bitched about Reed. To your mum. And for this project, we wanted to talk about why it has been so challenging to bring these guys to the big screen in a way that people abidingly love. So, for that, we rewatched the 2015 movie, practically disowned by director Josh Trank, but there was also the notorious film with a $1 million budget produced by Roger Corman in the early 90s that was never released, and we watched that too, along with a bunch of episodes of the 90s animated series. So I was going to call this show Fifth Time Lucky, but again, I don't just want to be talking about what they should do for the fifth film and what they probably won't. I want these to be abiding explorations of the characters. So this is like a Fantastic Four episode. So almost like the grounding of why anybody should care, because by the time we get to the Fantastic Four film, if they've done their job right we won't really have to talk about this quite so much. So let's start off talking about what each of the movies did wrong, noting in a f noting the few instances when they got something right, and then we shall move on to our second half, where all of the character study will hopefully pay off, and we can talk about who they are at their core, and how that could be represented on screen, not just in whatever fifth film finally emerges, many more on-screen appearances after that. So first off, 1994's The Fantastic Four. What was this film, and why has barely anybody seen it? From the pages of the world's greatest comic book adventure, 
Four heroes on a daring mission in space, but something went wrong. Genetically transformed, they become the most powerful superheroes of all time. But the forces of evil are out to destroy their cosmic power. Find them! And to survive, they must utilize all their strength. To put an end to their arch nemesis. Fantastic Four. This film was... Okay, the plan, allegedly, was that this film was intended to be a cheap rights retention exercise. Yeah. Bear was, in mind, that's what The Amazing Spider-Man was supposed to be. Yeah. Like, that that was yeah. Sony holding onto the Spider-Man rights. They had to make another Spider-Man film within five years of Spider-Man yeah. 3. So they decided to do a low-budget, Twilight-style romance drama, mm. Spider-Man, which yeah. became The Amazing Spider-Man, the most expensive Spider-Man film ever made. I don't know how you start out trying to do one thing and then do... Oh, I do, actually. <laughs> Heavy swerve to the left. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Roger Corman... Fantastic Four was, again, allegedly, because I personally think there are some question marks around this theory, but it was never supposed to see the light of day. Mm. Um, When you actually watch it, there is too much effort gone into certain elements of it for it genuinely to have been planned from jump to be just a box-ticking exercise. Mm. I, I get with the tiny amount of money that was allocated to it that they didn't expect it to be any good, that they did not expect it to make much back, that it wasn't there were no plans for it to be a massive blockbuster, albeit that some of the more enthusiastic members of the cast did seem to entertain the notion that it could have been far more than it ever ended up being. Mm. For perspective, folks, it was shot in a condemned barn that was full of rats and falling apart and might kill you. But that said, I, maybe there was some reason that meant they it had to look, to all intent and purposes, like a legitimate production. It just... That seems too Machiavellian to me. I, I Just sign a thing that says you're going to make it and then don't make it. I think someone pointed out in the documentary about it that we watched, which is called Doomed. Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Yeah, somebody pointed out that if it literally was just to retain the rights, all they had to do was start. They didn't have to finish. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so that... Watching that documentary, by the way, it was like watching a Christopher Guest movie. All of these people, so long after the fact now, sort of t- looking back on their time when they were making it, they were so excited and it was going to be a big break and a big job and they had so many hopes for it. And it was like, you know, you, you, could, you could take this old barn and you can paint some Dixie Cup silver and then that's fine. That looks like a laboratory. 
It doesn't. No, but <laughs> not the, at all. The level of sweet-natured delusion in that documentary is kind of heartbreaking. Absolutely. And it doesn't look like a film that was made in the 90s. That's no. the thing. Yeah. It looks like something that was made for TV in the 60s. Maybe, yeah. And I really wanted the role for Victor Von Doom, a.k.a. Dr. Doom. And I thought, well, okay, then, then now I'm going to pull out all the stops. I went in there and commanded the space. And I came out with this character that commanded space and time. And I just went as far as I could. And then I felt a surge of energy. Maybe it was Colossus himself. And it surged up through my body and I thought, I'm scared and I love it. <laughs> and, uh, and seen that acting. After I got the audition, I didn't know that much about Fantastic Four, so I needed to do a little research. And I went to this comic book store and looked up all the Fantastic Four. And the, the, my initial reaction was just, you see pictures of Sue Storm. And at the time, my hair was like shoulder length and blonde. I was like, oh, she looks like me. So it was that immediate, oh, this will be good. No, I got this uh, call that, hey, uh, we want you to you know, audition for this movie called The Fantastic Four. But I, I thought, okay, good, I'm gonna, I'm Ben Grimm, will Ben Grimm turn the thing? I, I'm gonna do the whole character. And then when I found out that they already hired the stunt guy, I'm like, what? I was pissed. I was really freaking pissed. <laughs> Seems lover boy is not quite himself today. Kill him. <gasps> Even though I, later on, I understand the reason why. And Michael's like 6'5". I mean, he's tall and broad. And so it's funny, if you watch the movie close enough, when, when Ben morphs into the thing, instead of being Ben morphing out into the thing, it's Ben, then he kind of morphs into <laughs> Then he morphs a little littler, smaller, because he, he, was, he was just so big to begin with. And so I just think if it would have jumped backwards, and if that suit was actually built on Michael, that would have been huge. Uh, the actual production notes here say that uh, in 1983, German producer Bernd Eichinger, who was not available for this documentary, met with Marvel comic Stan Lee uh, in Los Angeles to explore obtaining an option for a movie based on the Fantastic Four. So in 83, there had been a few shoddy-ass attempts at doing Marvel properties. There had been some Spider-Mans, there had been like, not good ones that are memorable. Japan had done a more memorable Spider-Man. Yeah the guy from hell and um uh, there'd been a sort of a, a rubbish captain america prior to the rubbish captain america in 1990 that we've already talked about mm. uh the guy who looked a bit like evil knievel in a pale blue crash helmet yeah. and there'd been a really weird looking doctor strange let me show you this doctor strange movie yeah this looks like a porno oh my god yes it does ah that mustache oh good lord um, but in uh, Doctor Strange cock. So there had just to set the scene, there had been a couple of lame ass attempts. I think probably the well, no, not even probably the most successful being the Incredible Hulk TV show that had its you know shonky ass Thor and Daredevil in it as well. Uh, but the actual show was melancholy and sad enough and and memorable enough in terms of just sort of like cult like cultural f big green footprint that it did sort of stand out as, okay, so Marvel did this, Batman had done Adam West show, Superman had done the um, 
George Reeve one, and then the 1978 most expensive blockbuster ever, Superman, and then Superman 2. Like, so DC had sort of got it. They were winding up to do Tim Burton's Batman at the same time running uh, Superman into the ground by letting the Salkins do whatever they wanted with it and then canon. But apparently this uh, fellow, Bernd Eichinger, bought it for what is estimated to be a quarter of a million, mm. 250000 and in particular... Buying the rights from Stanley yeah, and Marvel. It's, it's worth noting that this, I think, is the is the seed of the era of... I hesitate to say money men because they're not exactly bringing the money, but people working out that the, the success and the big bucks are not in the producing of the thing. They are in the owning the rights that you license to produce the thing. Oh, well, it was uh, it, 1983 would have been the year in Return of the Jedi came out after George Lucas had become incredibly rich yeah. by retaining the rights Precisely. to Star Wars. So, so Bert's aim here was not, oh my God, I love the Fantastic Four. I desperately want to make something really good about the Fantastic no. Four. He it wanted was, a golden will paycheck. Pay money to use properties that I could currently buy cheap because nobody's using them. And Which is pretty much what Sony did with Spider-Man. Exactly. They bought it from Marvel when Marvel were desperate. Yep. James Cameron was going to direct a Spider-Man film. We'll talk about that at some point yeah. because it, it'll make for a great after-school club. Yeah. Ultimately, that that period in the 90s when Marvel went nuts and flogged everything mm. for chestnuts. Avi Arad made most of their business decisions. This was a toy magnate who oh. uh, helped to make a whole bunch of cartoons. Some of them great. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah. I get Some of them they, terrible. The Fantastic Four season one. They did not have the resources to make their own good stuff at that point. Completely retaining the rights mm. would have, they would have then folded. They'd yeah. have gone under. But those Effectively, Arad, as much as you always spit whenever you hear his name, like like the old granny in Allo Allo, Avi Arad, <laughs> actually saved Marvel. Indeed. Um, but the those early days contracts could have been done with a little more of an eye to the future, I think, personally. And I'm saying this with the not-at-all business sense of Avi Arad, with the hindsight no, of 20-odd years. We would be eaten by business sharks. Oh, absolutely. So, effectively what he did was, uh, like, he, he asked a bunch of studios, Warner Brothers and Columbia showed interest, but no one really wanted to commit to it. And um, in September 92, like, he's on the cusp of being about to, because like, he only really bought a temporary license mm. to do something with this, because you can't just buy the rights to something and then squat on it forever. I don't know, like, obviously that doesn't account for things like metal arms, you know, the thing that uh, EA are just going to sit on, oh, Activision are just going to sit on forever and never make a game until it's trending on Twitter. Maybe they got more nails with their contracts. Yeah. But ultimately, this contract said, you make a Fantastic Four movie or you give us this contract back. So he did. He he got it together, made the cheapest possible, shonkiest version of the Fantastic Four. And then, cruelly, puppeteered the people involved into doing promo tours for it. Comic-Con. Ah, hang on a minute. No. They did that themselves. Mm. What he did was not stop them at any point. And he said things like, I don't have the funds available to pay for you to do that. 
But if you want to do that, you go do that. And if he knew that whole time and he never said anything to anybody, mm-hmm. that is mean. But he didn't make them go do it. And for the record, pretending you're making a Fantastic Four movie when you're not is quite cruel. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but to everyone else, it was real. And uh, the the film eventually didn't come out. And then eventually the stars of the film, lost in a malaise, were finding out at conventions, oh, dude, yes, you've seen that Fantastic Four film? And uh, they were like, no, do you have it? And it was like, yeah, it's on DVD right here. We somehow got a copy of it. Ten bucks. <laughs> you fucking cheeky <laughs> They had to pay ten bucks for a copy of their own movie? Oh, Dude, just give it to them. Come on. You have ten at home and you know it. Yeah, but those burner C- <laughs> burner DVDs don't come They'll cheap. They pay for themselves. No. Oh, Christ. It pains me that some dude <laughs> in a back alley in New York probably made more money out of this film. <laughs> than the thing that he was selling it to. <laughs> So, the actual effect of watching the film, it's actually got some of the better representations, maybe not ideas, but because they've just gone into it with wide eyes and gone, let's just do the comic book, and rather than going, I'm embarrassed by this, I don't want to do anything to do with this, or like the people who made the Super Mario Brothers movie, we want to make Blade Runner. Well, you got Super Mario Brothers. Fuck it. Well, then I'm making my Blade Runner Super Mario Brothers movie in an old cement factory, and it's going to be dark and dystopian, and also and really go, silly. What the fuck? Then there's going to be silly string everywhere. But rather than just not do that, rather than just going, I'm embarrassed by the very premise of this, so we're going to do a grown-ups version of this. They were just doing. Josh Trank did. (sighs) Wait for it. I am. I am. (laughs) Rather than just doing that, like they. So the Doctor Doom is actually the best of the four representations of Doctor Doom across these movies, because he's just Doctor Doom. He's a dude in green, like bright green cloak, accurate to Secret Wars, and he's. He's always playing with his gauntlets and going kung, 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 like that. Annoyingly, for me in particular, as someone who works in audio the whole time, his voice is like this. I said, Ah, you're kids. I'm a fantastic four. I'm a fan. I'm a So, what? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fortunately, the actor playing Doctor Doom came on and said, okay, so I was supposed to be looping this character and as in recording ADR. So I'd say it on the day, but I'd I'd know that even though you can't really hear me, I'd come back in and I'd do it in a big theatrical booming voice. And he was really getting into the idea of being Doctor Doom. But then he was told when it came to the ADR stage, "Ah, we we like your stuff that you did on the day. And it's like, a lot of it's unintelligible. Yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine, fine. So it burns him in a way that he will never not be burned. And he, it was, bless his heart, he was like, until one day we fix it. Like, he actually holds out hope you that he can return to totally do ADR. Right. Okay, you find that guy, you email him and you say, right, dude, you send me your take on that and I will composite Here's the it thing. for you. They didn't have any scripts left. He didn't know what the words were to do ADR. Oh. We so like, probably find a script. Oh yeah, no, no, I know. That's the thing. Like, I know roughly what's, but I, I could do this. 
I don't think I'm gonna. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I could repair that part of it. They destroyed every print. Why? Mm. They they actually screened it at at several like small cinemas in a kind of a, like it has to be released in a cinema for you, it to be considered released. So you show it one night, one time to one audience. That was a cinematic release. Like I think the Captain America nineteen ninety film launched in Croatia or something. Mm. Oh, okay, well if that was part of the criteria, then that blitzes the idea that they could have just started production and then dropped it. Yeah, no, I think the actual the contract law would have stated you have to have released a movie okay. of the Fantastic Four, but. The reason not to release it was because it was a pile of garbage. Yeah. At least Bernd Eichinger looked at it and went, well, this is, is crap, but we never expected it to be any good. That's why we scrimped on absolutely everything. Mm. And um, Have you seen the Rotten Tomato scores, by the way? What was it? Well, I, I check because I might have misread this, but I'm pretty sure it has the highest of all of them. I mean, it's still not high, don't get me wrong. And this is like 30 or something. 27% with an audience appreciation of 31 the 2005 movie was 28%. Uh, okay, there we go. Beats it by. With an audience one. score of 45. I stand corrected, sorry. Rise of the Silver Surfer, 37%. Ah, okay. And Fan Forstick, 9%. Yeah, that one I did. Okay, but ultimately what Eichinger did was retain the rights, move forward, and then in 2005 he was a instrumental figure in making the Chris Evans, Johan Griffith, Jessica Alba, Michael Chiklis, and the guy from Nip Tuck movie. And that movie was well enough received. It made a large amount of money. People were like, yeah, this is fine. It's 2005. We don't know any better. And Chris Evans was charming enough to, to keep people going, ah, male gaze, okay. Uh, it, it wasn't a huge favorite, but it was in between Spider-Man's 2 and 3. So people were just sort of you know, interested in watching any kind of superhero movie at that point. And uh, he made his money. And then Rise of the Silver Surfer came out in 2007. Didn't get anywhere near as much of audience appreciation, even though it's a better film. And uh, Bernd Eichinger died in 2011. So he made his money, he got to enjoy it for six years, and then he died. And that's the story of the rights of the Fantastic Four and how one fake movie was made so that one real movie could be made. And the reason that the fake movie was effectively kept from the general public was because they didn't want to poison the well. They didn't want to put a lame version of Fantastic Four out there. So the people would go, ah, the Fantastic Four, they're lame. I don't want to see that at all. Okay, so why did you then do that three more times? Indeed. But the, uh, they already had a template for how that might work with the lame Captain America movie. True. And uh, in the meantime, between Fantastic Four 1994 and Fantastic Four 2005, The Incredibles had been released. A really good model for this is exactly how you do it. And we've already covered The Incredibles 1 and 2. I think we had, we had to do that before we really talked about The Fantastic Four, just to sort of like to, to, to get the, you know, here's how you do it right for The Incredibles. But they can't just go that route now. They've got to do more, and it's got to be connected to the MCU in the way that the Spider-Man Home trilogy and his appearances in Civil War in the Avengers films make Spidey connected to the MCU. I know a lot of people don't like that side of him, and they don't want him to really be that connected to Iron Man and everybody else, but ultimately this is what seems to define Tom Holland's Peter is that he is a hero among many other heroes, and to that end, rather than just having all of New York depends on you, he has gone to space and back. He has fought the greatest battle of all history, all time. And now he's got to be his own Spider-Man. Yeah. One of the big 
overarching points behind Marvel, and I'm talking the comics universe as well as the cinematic universe here, is that it is a universe of Marvels. There's more than one. Yeah. And I, I love seeing how they interact. Case in point, uh, Namor, uh, who uh, we saw just recently in uh, Wakanda Forever. A lot of people have been hoping for Namor to be a, a big first appearance in whatever Fantastic Four film they do. It's He worked extremely well uh, as uh, an uh, undersea analogue for Wakanda with his people. I think it's actually neat to see Marvel not necessarily doing the obvious thing mm. each time. Also, the fact that they've now laid the groundwork with Black Panther and Namor and have them as the existing precepts for the Fantastic Four to step into, mm -hmm. that's kind of nice. Because Yeah, because ultimately both of these major characters were introduced and reintroduced, respectively, in the Fantastic Four book as a kind of a, hey, we want to like make other books about these guys. Can, can we do that? And do you like these? And... The, she Hulk was a member of the FF for a long time. So was Spidey. And it's interesting to note some of the people who auditioned for us on this little film back then. Um, one day we saw Mark Ruffalo, who would find fame later on in another Marvel franchise. We saw Rene O'Connor. We read Nick Cassavetes for Victor Von Doom, and Titus Welliver, who is now a huge television star. We read Melora Walters for the role of Ben Grimm. We read Patrick Warburton. After we all got cast, the director, Ole Sasson, he wanted everybody to uh, just get together, at least for one meeting, to kind of just touch base, because this was quick, you know? I mean, this is a incredibly short amount of time to accomplish what you think would be huge for a, um, a sci-fi movie, a, a comic book movie. So we all go to Oli's house. In, in, uh, in his pep talk to us was, okay gang, here we all are. And, and um, we realize that there is not the money involved uh, for this production that normally a, a movie of this kind or caliber would need to pull off, especially all the special effects. People have said that arguably they're the most important characters in uh, Marvel history. Technically, they're the most important in terms of it's really significant that they were the ones that started everything. They sort of gave the modern science superhero because so much of DC's original heroes were rooted in mythology. Mm. In a modern context, I would say Iron Man, who because that's the thing. They started the 616 Marvel Universe, whereas Tony Stark, uh, Robert Downey Jr., started the 616 Marvel Universe. Mm. You see my point. Yes, I do. Um, but I do like the, that categorization of the type of superheroes, though. Yes, the DC uh, primarily emerges from mythology. I personally really like it when they combine mythology with mm. the other takes. Oh, yeah. The but... bits where magic turned up in this and Reed was like, rah, rah, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is good. I like this. Um, but the, yeah, I, I can really get behind that idea of the science-based superheroes. Tony is an industrial-based superhero. Yeah. And Reed's like, well, I'm sorry, uh, so I don't believe in magic. And she's like, well, obviously it's real. Well, it believes in you, dude, so step up. <laughs> get with the program. Yeah. There's not that much more to say about the 1994 version uh, of... Uh, Fantastic Four. It's very earnest. It's of a kind that they would never make these days. Mm -hmm. Even 
uh, kids' films with bright colours are more canny because they want to make sure that the parents in the audience don't chew their arms off. But at the same time, that's probably what made it feel like it was not a 90s thing, because even the cartoons were a little bit more edgy than that, even though they couldn't say death or kill. The thing looks terrible, but at the same time, impressive for their budget and the fact that like, everything about it is supposed to be shit. And, but at the same time, it's not the same as lazy low effort. It doesn't... The, the film itself does not reek of laziness. It reeks of naivety. Yeah. It and is soaked in a childlike uh, happiness to be itself. Yeah, and it is very obvious that it, they didn't have the money to do certain things, but they seem to have compensated for that mm. with effort, which makes it look like a really well-meaning indie movie yeah. rather than uh, an underpaid, undercut, Studio movie. Yeah. Or some fans got together and made uh, a fan film in uh, 1994 and then asked Stan Lee, can we release it, Mr. Lee? And he went, ah, no. no. <laughs> Indeed. Well, apparently it was Avi Arad who said, ah, no. Yeah, um, which but, is why you uh, had to villainise him. Yeah! Oh, there's other reasons, but we've talked about those before. Um, but well, what... We don't want to make it lame. May I introduce you to season one of The Fantastic Four from 1994. All the did with the thing I think one of the reasons why that comes across as being a bit more or a bit it, it doesn't feel like cheap shoddy CG it's a suit mm. and yeah alright they made the suit first and then cast the actor as primarily do you fit in the suit <laughs> oh you fit so you can be our which thing which is really not the way to do it but I'm just, they did. I'm the guy who brings the tea but thank yeah. you <laughs> What he did, with, or what he was able to do through the mask mm. and, like, the emotive uh, movement that the mask had, it wasn't, like, I'm not talking Henson level here by any stretch of the imagination, but it was enough that you could feel what mm. he was feeling. He looked like the gorilla in Trading Places. No, it's better than that. Okay. The gorilla in The Man With Two Brains. Yeah. Psych, same gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's the same suit, but it's the same actor. I knew you'd fall for that one. <laughs> it was a guy, by the way, not actually a gorilla. <laughs> Just so you know. Oh, I knew that. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell you, he is the fifth best gorilla actor of all time. That Andy Serkis. Ah. <laughs> hey, Andy Serkis did not play a gorilla. Yeah, he did King Kong. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Goodness I sake. No, 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 I was just thinking of Planet of the Apes. I know you were. The gorilla was not Andy Serkis. Same gorilla. <laughs> okay, Sharon has a blind spot from simian actors, it would appear. 
Don McLeod. Alex Hyde-White played Reed Richards, and again, he's, he's just sort of this... I think he was the one who... Uh, in the interview, seemed the most wistful. Mm. Like he was like, "Oh, they're, yeah. they're probably keeping it in a vault somewhere in Kentucky. Like they wouldn't destroy all of them." Like he was like, "Oh, please, Mister Lee, tell us that they're going to show the Fantastic Four someday. When the new ones come out, all the kids will want to see the old one." The thing is, though, he did explain why. Ultimately, he he came to this movie off the back of a divorce and a couple of jobs that had gone badly, mm. and this was like this was his rope. I'm getting to play a superhero it. that all the kids will yeah, think is and awesome. And he really liked his take on the character, albeit that the character was pretty thin. Mm. So I can completely understand why it meant so much to him personally. And he seemed to be the one who was really driving all of those self-motivated promotion yeah, yeah. Uh, efforts. He reminds me of the uh, the dad from Troll 2, the dentist. Yes! Yes. If you watch the documentary on Troll 2, very yeah. similarly, the dad was all excited and hoping that people would really embrace Troll 2, but uh, it, it proved... Uh, difficult to keep one's head above water in uh, horror crowds when there's so many other people they want to get the uh, interv- uh, well, uh, autographs from. You've got Jason over there, one of the many Michael Myers. Rebecca Stab as Susan Storm. She's fine. She actually seemed to be a little more self-possessed as an older uh, actress in the uh, uh, interview stages and just being able to really Which is not at all put herself uncommon. across there. Yeah, you know. You, you get more confident and self-possessed as you get older. Who knew? Mm. Uh, Michael Bailey-Smith played uh, Ben Grimm. Carl Kierfalio as The Thing. That's one of the issues. The guy who was actually in The Thing suit wasn't the same guy who played Ben Grimm. Gotcha. And Joseph Culp was the theatrical Victor Von Doom. It's also noteworthy that the uh, uh, composers who came in, they just keep riffing on one particular very cloying, sweet theme for the Fantastic Four. And you got yourself a pilot. Now all we need is a crew. Hi, Mrs. Storm. Johnny and Susan go to outer space with us. Well, I don't know, dear. You'll have to ask them. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good to see you, too. (laughs) Anyone for a ride in a rocket ship? I'll drive. Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Do. Don't let anything happen to my babies. See to it personally. Look at you. The Fantastic Four. But their action theme is just the TIE fighter battle from Star Wars. It's it's shameless, but at the same time they must have gone. Oh, fuck it, we're not releasing it, so we can't get sued. It's barbering time for real. Play more! they had to burn all the copies it was like you stole our music yeah prove it (laughs) 
The two films in the middle we have already talked about, but what struck you about them this time? The Chris Evans, Joan Griffith, Jessica Alba, I think Michael Chiklis versions. What what I well, yeah, we've talked about them before, but I think what really struck me this time was how much the pieces that they had were wasted. Hmm. And how much the Right, this, this is my theory on the overwhelming badness of, of the Fantastic Four takes that we've had so far. Mm-hmm. The Roger Corman one, slightly aside, but even that suffers from this to some degree. Okay. And I've said this before about the X-Men, but it really stands true for the Fantastic Four because it's such a smaller team. When your starting block for making a Fantastic Four movie is the powers and you work backwards from there, you are doomed to fail. Doomed. Pun intended. Because the powers are not the point. You need to start with the characters, how they interact. There's so much, in, particularly in the MCU, that is about found family. Mm. This is about actual, like... And I don't mean that to, to say that blood family is more important than found family by any means. But it's it is found a, family for Ben. He is not related by yeah, blood to anyone. Yeah, that's true. And he is that's absolutely true. crucial. Yeah. But the, the point being that it, it's a different type of family to what they've really focused on and emphasised before. So... Or marriage, obviously. Obviously, Reed is yeah. not connected by blood to anyone else, no, but uh, no. he did but, marry but Sue the, Storm. The Fairly early, by is... the way. He married her like six years into the comic run. Yeah. But the idea that these are people who are together by circumstance, yeah. not because they have actively sought each other out. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're the template for so many other superhero yeah. ragtag teams that have come since then. Indeed. But the... the the X-Men was kind of a, but what if we did it in a bunch of teens and we sort of pulled them all together? So we've got like five Johnny Storms but and a Sue. Aside, completely Four leaving Storms aside the failure to characterise, which happens over and over again. If you start with the powers and therefore your script is entirely based around how do we set up scenarios that will make these powers interesting. If you're more keen on making the powers interesting... It's not even interesting, but just like making, showing them on screen. Yeah. Look, he's on fire. But if, if that's your priority, over and above making the people interesting, why are you even bothering? Why are we here? Brian Singer. Yeah. So, like I said, I've said it before about the X-Men, and it it holds so true for these. And it's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think Jessica Alba was sold incredibly short. I think she was the wrong person for Sue Storm. And having got her, they gave her nothing to work with. It is kind of pathetic how her invisibility is never useful, ever. It is. It's... Like, 95% of the time, it is shown in a context that is so that they can make a nude female joke. Yeah. Like, she's like, oh, I've gone invisible. And people are like, Sue, your clothes. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course. And then starts stripping off in the street while invisible and then goes back to visibility. I'm like, okay, that's... Yep, yeah, cool. And then they do it again and again and again across these two films. I'm like, seriously? They, they, they do use her force fields twice, I think, ever... For in some capacity that's useful. Three if you count her using it to conceal the zit. Yes, she uses it for for vanity. <sighs> but that that's more invisibility. She's using the invisibility to Oh right, to so, sorry, it's just the, the way they did the CG, it looked like she pushed it back in. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, no. Um she just made the zit part of her invisible and said, I just have to concentrate on that for the next few hours. Mm. But 
Also, she's a whiner as a character. Like she's the one who's always harping on Reed for working too much. Mm. And ultimately, we want the audience to be on her side. Reed does need to be working too much. I did notice the difference actually reading some of the older comics reading. because it's it's it is a key element of their relationship that Reed works too fucking hard and she is always on at him about it. Yeah. But the difference in how it does it's feel like by the modern era she'd have gotten a hobby. Well, yeah. Yeah, I've taken up macrame. <laughs> I'm going to be out there saving the world. Um, you, you do you. Um, <laughs> the the difference I would say is that when it feels like Sue is portrayed well, her reasoning behind Reed, you work too hard is Reed, you are going to burn yourself out. This family needs you, mm. and if you totally isolate yourself, what do we have of you other than a closed door? Side note: We've seen this done. Badly in the MCU. Pepper Potts became a whining nag in Iron Man 3 in particular. Absolutely. I talked about this during our Infinity Saga rewatch, a special Patreon-only series where we go back through all the original movies from phases 1 through 3, which began in mid-20 and is ending only just now at the end of 2022. But Pepper is very unkindly written and reacts to Tony as though she hasn't been, diligently supporting him for many, many years already, and doesn't really know who he is. She has no obligation to put up with all of the shit that he pulls. He makes her feel angry, lonely, and scared. She does, however, refuse to empathize with him, ignores his PTSD, and views his obsession with making more and more suits all the time as an inconvenience rather than symptomatic of extreme anxiety. Pepper, written by Shane Black, is awful. All she had to do was say, we need to get you help, Tony. This is not my field, but I'm with you now. So for both our sakes, we need to address this. Be a grown-up, as written by a grown-up, rather than half-whining girlfriend, half-whining mom, as written by Shane Black, who has, shall we say, ups and downs when it comes to writing women and blunders through mental and physiological conditions like a bulldozer. And I get that there's an element there of trying to distance her from being his secretary. Yeah. And the person who fixes all of his shit. But you can do that by evolving her, not simply removing her from the equation. She could be his best friend. He said himself in Iron Man 1. Yeah. There's no one else. Anyway, to bring this back to the... But that's the thing, like, we've already had that dynamic done badly. Yeah. It would be unforgivable for them to bring Sue back into the MCU and have her be a yammer and nag. Yeah, the version of Sue that we get in the... Is it Tim's story? Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah, the 2005-2007. Jessica Alba. She is coming at this from a perspective of, read you work too hard, pay more attention to me. And that is doing her character a massive disservice. No layers. No, there were no layers. Uh, to their credits, on a superficial level, Chris Evans played a very entertaining Johnny Storm. Mm. Entertaining. And in Rise of the Silver Surfer, he does get to, on a relatively basic level, give that character mm. a layer or two that weren't there before. I honestly think the, the guts of that comes from Chris Evans' performance rather than the script, mm. but it, he at least had the capacity to do that. And far from your, well, they couldn't get him to play Captain America. He's already Johnny Storm. People yeah, won't stand for it. Yes, that was foolish. I actually think that his playing Johnny Storm may have actually gotten him the attention that was needed for mm. them to go, come back in. Maybe. You look good in blue. <clears throat> 
Uh, and Michael Chiklis, in comparison to the other two things, Thing 1 and Thing 2, if you will, actually, to me, does a really good job. Mm. This will probably be the last time we see the thing as a big rocky suit. Because the third version of the thing was uh, in Fan Stick was CG, and he probably will be from now on, which will make him expensive. But it'll be odd if you got him, a dude in a suit, stood right next to Korg, who's made of rocks and... Hopefully, we'll never be back in the MCU ever again. But actually, Willow said something really quite fascinating. They said they need to make Ben Grimm look like he is made of rock and has a man's eyes looking out, not that he is a man wearing rocks, that he is the rock. It's not just a skin. Yeah, it's not a suit. This is Ben. Yeah. Willow also said, of this version of Doom, who is the worst of all three of them, God, his teeth are so white, it's annoying. (laughs) For me, though, Nip Tuck's Julian McMahon had maybe 1% of the presence that a Doctor Doom needs to have, and so much of that is just in the voice. Julian's probably probably the funniest guy on the set. I mean, he is hilarious, but at the same time, he can switch that and give us this edge. I mean, that's what was great about Julian as well. Through through all of the the stuff, he always has this edge about him. Even when he's being the nicest and the charming, the most charming guy in the world, there's always this little thing where you know, hmm, this guy might he might switch up on me. And he brought that to the role of Victor because Victor becomes quote unquote the greatest villain of all time. I, I put a lot of pressure on myself because there is a reputation to uphold. There is, I mean, he's the original nemesis. He's the original bad guy is the original whatever you know what I mean I, you know so many characters have come out of that including you know Lucas's comments on the you know Darth Vader comes from from uh, Dr. Doom so just to fill those shoes I felt like it was almost impossible when I started uh, obviously at some point in time you have to kind of let that go and say I'll do the best I can and I'll give it my best shot and whatever I can to fulfill a character and hopefully people will enjoy it Dr. Doom takes to wearing a metal mask and we've been experimenting with different techniques for making his voice sound more scary. They wanted a mask sound, so we came up with a SCSI drive bay that has some metal reflections inside there and uh, actually record through the speaker, through the box, into the mic. We actually have it hooked up to this one right now, the electrical connector box. If you look over here, you can see the mic sticking right through here. It resonates through the whole box here. We get kind of a nice boxy resonant sound, and there's a couple pillows in there, and we're kind of off-axis, and uh, it fills up the uh, the mask sound along with these two tracks together. It just basically it becomes very believable. It's something that you would hear in nature as opposed to being kind of a concocted thing electronically. And after all of that technical and dramatic consideration, this is how the 2000s Doom Ended up. Victor, please. Call me Doom. The machine works. It worked on Ben. It can work on you. We can turn you back. Do you really think fate turned us into gods so we could refuse these gifts? Victor, you always thought you were a god. Now back off. Susan, let's not fight. No, let's. I do actually think that the standout star of Silver Surfer 
was the Silver Surfer. Mm. Uh, the the combination of uh, Lawrence Fishburne's commanding voice and Doug Jones's astonishing physicality, and the, I think just the sharpness of his brow. They did really well on. I think there's also a distinction between an obviously CG Silver Surfer and a definitely Doug Jones in a rubber suit Silver Surfer. So for that Act 2 section where he's lost his powers cosmic, that was actually the best part of it. And he does come off like an extraterrestrial being. The blend between vocal performance and physical performance is almost seamless. Oh, yeah. It, It works really, really well. And the fact that the scenes where the Surfer is around... They, they, it's almost like they know they can't make this goofy. Mm. And the dignity that he brings to it means that it feels like he's in a completely separate movie to what's going on when he's not mm. on screen. Similarly, the original Fantastic Four, the sandwiched middle section, when it's not going, oh, hey, they're going to go into space. Let's make that happen. Then they get powers. Nor is it dealing with a shoddy, dull Act 3 finale action sequence. The middle bit mostly focusing on Ben Grimm and his discomfort, is again the best bit. Hmm. It's almost like drama matters. Galactus being a big cloud, so in such close proximity, by the way, because this was 2007 to 2011's Green Lantern, where Parallax was also just a big cloud. Mm. uh, We don't really know what bad guys should look like. Cloud. It's unimaginative, and it's one of those kind of the Street Fighter movie kind of, well, no one's going to be flying around with a big purple hat that is the tits. Mm. Like, that's not realistic, so he's just a big cloud instead. People don't necessarily come to Marvel movies for absolute realism. And it's not your job to deliver us a Galactus that might be. If you're going to go with the cloud, they had, like, the purple lights in the centre of the cloud. Just give us little flashes Mm -hmm. of bits of Galactus, just to imply that he is sitting within the cloud. Yeah, yeah, and and watching the Silver Surfer animated series, it became abundantly clear in comparison to that shitty first season of... uh, Uh, Fantastic Four. By the way, folks, if you look on Disney+, Plus, they actually have both season one and two declared as one season. It's not. And halfway through, the animation style, scripting, the the level of polish, pretty much everything about the show completely transforms. They may as well be two completely different shows. Mm -hmm. So while it's still not as good as a completely forgotten show from the 2000s, Fantastic Four World's Greatest Heroes, which we have been very kindly sent on DVD by Greg Downing from America, because it's not available over here in any capacity, and we will most likely do an after-school club on it. 1995's Season 2 of the Fantastic Four animated series begins with Episode 14 and a blind man shall lead them, which is, of course, Daredevil. So that's where you need to start. Skip over those first 13, my God. Uh, but the the shitty version of Galactus in that awkward-looking purple Just dude. Just a tall guy in a hat. Um, versus the one in the Silver Surfer, where they, they pretty much retcon the intro by not having the Fantastic Four present for his uh, origin. Make him so enormous that you never see all of him. He has to break frame. Every part of Galactus needs to fill the screen. Is he a Celestial? I think he's like a celestial cousin, the same way that the Care Bear cousins were. Right, because he, he does feel like a celestial gone rogue. If the celestials consume planets in order to come into being, it's almost like Galactus then just didn't stop. Honestly, I don't think he's just a celestial because we watched, well, we both read The Trial of Reed Richards and that actually has Galactus's, as far as I can tell, canonical origin. Mm. 
issue 262, folks. Check that one out. It's £1.59 on Amazon for the Kindle version. I do love the fact that since comics became digitised, you can just read any issue of a regularly in print and licensed comic rather than when I was a kid, you could you could maybe get a reprint if you were lucky. And then as I got a bit older, they would have collected editions and to get one comic, you'd have to get loads of them. But you couldn't just buy issue 262 of the Fantastic Four. Especially not in this country. Not for £1.59. Down. It would be in Forbidden Planet, it would be at the back, and it would cost £55. Mm. But now you can. And not only that, it won't look all faded and old and, you know, be incredibly be delicate. compiled of dots like the reprints. No. You know, all of the art will be as big as you need it to be on your screen. You can zoom in and, and really look around and zoom out. Also, one thing I've noticed with the reading the, the digital comicsology versions mm -hmm. is that ability to, to swipe through a panel at a time mm -hmm. is massively helpful for me because it slows me the fuck down. It gives you direction. If I'm reading it a page at a time, I skim through so fast, I miss things. But I can't not. My, mm. my brain is trying to take in the whole page at once. Yeah. And doing it a panel at a time really helps me absorb. Okay. And now let's get to the only one of the four existing movies that actually will now make me scowl whenever I see it being referred to. The first time I saw it, I was just indifferent. But now I actively loathe this one. 2015's Fantastic Four, stylized as Fanforstic. Dr. Storm. We gave you six years and millions of dollars, and you gave us nothing. What's different now? Reed Richards. He knows answers to questions we don't even know to ask yet. This is our chance to learn more about our planet and maybe even save it. I want you to meet my daughter, Sue. You want to be famous? I just want my work to make a difference. John, Reed. This guy doesn't take orders well. Yeah, especially from people who say, I don't take orders well. Don't let any of these lab coats give you any crap, all right? Well, if I do, I know who to call. The muscle. I gotta say, it's fun having you here. Really? No. <laughs> what you've created here is incredible. You guys sure you're in the best shape to be doing this? Yeah. yeah. We're good. They just cracked interdimensional travel. Incredible. All I want to know is where are my children? Four have survived. All exhibit unique physical conditions. I just want to fix my friends. You can't fix this. You should use these powers to help people. You opened a door. You don't know how to close. You don't know anything about what's coming. What is coming? Stop him. It's going to take everything you have. Have I seen this before or was last night the first time? I don't know. Because I did not remember a lick of it. 
Okay. I think that was the first time I've seen it, personally. Well, maybe that's the case. What the hell went wrong here, apparently? Uh, well, that depends on who you talk to. If you talk to Josh Trank, what went wrong is they didn't give him enough money. Stop the steal. They stole it from me. So originally he was supposed to have a budget of somewhere in the region of 150 million. And then when they got to the filming stage, they slashed it by 28 and only gave him 122. Now, Which I is still this... more expensive than Rise of the Silver Surfer, the best of these four films. Indeed. Now, I said this to you last and night And it's only all right. It. Josh Trank was unproven working with budgets of this size. He had not made that that... Chronicle and that's it. Yeah, not that that necessarily makes a difference. A, a small budget filmmaker can step up and make a really cracking blockbuster. We've seen it happen. That was not the case with this one, but that doesn't mean that it was a, a, a pre... In fact, that's the way thing. it's done now. Like, uh, Jonathan Watts, who came on to do uh, um, the Spider-Man Homecoming, mm. was unproven in such uh, something so huge. Even James Gunn hadn't worked with budgets that big Absolutely. until they gave him Guardians. Colin Trevorrow. I mean, I don't like <laughs> Jurassic World, but it would appear that the world doesn't care whether dinosaur films are good or bad. They'll still go to see them to the tune of a billion dollars. Yeah, indeed. Colin Trevorrow. No man but what a critic. Um, but but yeah, so... But what I said yesterday was, if you can't make a good blockbuster for 122 million, you, you can't certainly make can't make one for 150. Yeah. It, that's not how it works, Josh. That's his opinion on why that did not end up being good. Uh, everybody else's opinion appears to be that it was Josh Trank that did not make it good. Now, my... I, I'm going to briefly refer to what I said about you cannot start with the powers and work backwards. And that is exactly what Josh Trank did. When I was watching this, I was like, it's like he's just made Chronicle again, only he's copy-pasted the... Uh, the situation onto the Fantastic Four. You could have changed the names and the appearances of everybody in that film and made it not a Fantastic Four movie and it still would have been exactly the same. It felt like he had absolutely no interest in the origin material. He actively told Kate Mara not to read the comics because he didn't want their... Uh, <clears throat> he didn't want the comics take on Sue to be the take that she gave him. He didn't want Kate Mara in the first place. Apparently she was forced on him by the studio. I have no idea why. She's the best actor in this, by the way. Yeah. He then insisted on having Miles Teller and argued with him the whole time. Apparently they have personalities that are just not compatible. Um, and many, many other stories of Trank being... Oh, he was high. He was high the whole time. He was unavailable. He didn't. He did not like making decisions. But then, when the decisions were made for him, because he would throw his toys out of the pram, dug his heels in too much. He destroyed his house that he was borrowing while filming. The the studio had hired him a house to live in while this was they were working. His dogs made a mess of it when they tried to talk to him about it because they were going to have to pay for the, the it to be repaired. He made it worse on purpose, apparently. I don't know, mm. you know, the, the accuracy of any of these reports aside. Allegedly. It seems pretty apparent also, that c- my, my reasoning for not liking Chronicle may not need to be entirely pointed at Max Landis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is also around about the time that he was going... Josh Trank was going to be directing the Boba Fett movie. And then he wasn't. Because mm, he fell out with Kathleen Kennedy. I also feel like Kathleen Kennedy had investigated the uh, the, the turmoil on set in uh, 
the, the Fantastic Four movie and went, oh, we don't oh, need that heavens, no. for Star Wars at all. Because yeah. so. also she has made it patently clear that she is not willing to go along with the boy genius motif yeah. and just accept. I mean, she booted Trevorrow because they didn't get on. Yeah, she also booted um, Lord and Miller. But the, uh, the, the script for Fanforstic was written, co-written by... Simon Kinberg, who wrote most of the later shitty X-Men films and directed Dark Phoenix, that film you screamed at. And the truth shall set you free. But also, Josh Trank gets a credit there because he was wanted to sort of... Uh, he, he was credited for rewrites and things and probably on-set rewrites. But also Jeremy... Yeah, otherwise known as making it the fuck up as you go along. But also Jeremy Slater who was head writer and executive producer for Moon Knight. Huh. Huh. Okay. Josh Trank, when the film finally emerged, like the day after, like Fox did that thing where they won't show anyone they the had film. An, yeah, they had a uh, critics embargo. They, from the sounds of it, took production out of his hands at a certain key point. They'd filmed the beginning, the middle, and the very end... But a lot of that connective tissue that goes from... I mean, honestly, I say the middle. What I mean is the the, the Act 1 section where they, you know, the four get together and get in pods that, of their own invention that warp them to the most boring fucking place in existence. It's supposed to be the negative zone. You're supposed to think Kirby Crackle and like these incredible... Like when Doctor Strange was tumbling through all of those different dimensions or that other time Doctor Strange was also tumbling through those different dimensions. The negative zone. It's supposed to be astonishing. And yet... It's it looks the- like the dark world. It looks like yeah. the place that Jane was dropping shoes through. So. Svartalfheim. Yeah. The dark planet of the dark elves could be filmed very cheaply in a quarry Indeed. and it was. And it makes it feel like it's not another dimension, it's just a place. Yeah. You just found a portal. Yeah. Not to be confused with Superman's Phantom Zone, which is where he stores all the super criminals in mm. various versions of the text. Now that feels like a dimension. He puts them in an envelope and throws them into space. Forgive us! <laughs> However, if you've seen the Helen Slater film Supergirl, the Phantom Zone in that, where they banish... Uh, well, actually, well, where Peter O'Toole banishes himself, he's like, no, no, this whole city's going to die. Into the Phantom Zone I go. For me, it will be excruciating. You mean you could actually get everyone into the Phantom Zone and then use it as a way of evacuating the city? For the Phantom Zone? It's just as unimaginatively a dark quarry. Stop filming these astonishing places in the most boring places of all. Okay, so they go there... They get hit with some various goo power stuff. I don't know. Doctor Doom falls right into the green stuff. And then it cuts to a year later. What they mean is reshoots later. Because the studio have grabbed hold of the film, shaken Josh Trank out of it, Mm. and then kind of forced the rest of the film to happen. And you can only tell because of Kate Mara's wig, which just is awful. Speaking of Kate Mara, can you just fill in? Because I think I must have missed this bit. How the hell does Sue get powers? Because she wasn't with them. Oh, um, when they came back, a uh, wibbly wave or something, okay. probably. I don't know. She didn't go because there was a... Women were deemed too silly for interdimensional yes. travel. Pod only has four spaces, yeah. even though there's five of them. Well, they're the Fantastic Four. It's Reed... Uh, ben, they just phone up and say, you got to help us, Ben. We need someone to we hold a flag. Fall. And Sue went, hey, I'm right here. She was controlling it from NASA, effectively. She was the, like, she's smart. That's the point. But at the same time, yeah. 
indeed. I mean, if anyone was controlling it from there, it should really have been Victor Von Doom. Yes. Yeah? Who, yeah, who was effectively like, you know, no, 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 I'm going to do this. And they're like, God damn you, Doom! Mm. And he's like, no, ah. no, it'll work, it'll yeah, work, it'll no, work. that makes more sense, because then when they come back, they're shielded by the fact that they're in the pods, and so they get a filtered version of the cosmic mm. wave. He gets it both barrels because he's yeah. unprotected. And, it, 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 uh, and Doom's run out to try to get to the thing, and he's like, everyone else out of my way, no one else is allowed in there. And so he gets both. Just to show his zeal yeah. being the thing that gets him. In the end, he ends up like stranded there for a year, and then wakes up as a greebly monster thing and then makes everyone's brains pop and he's stalking around and apparently it's not Toby Kebbell but Toby Kebbell's speciality is performance capture. He played Cobra, one of the greatest nemeses of all time in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Does that mean Toby Kebbell did what Peter the psychiatrist does in the room? He literally falls out of the movie and that's it. And goes, I'm done. I'm done here. You're always playing psychologist, Victor. <laughs> okay, pretty much, yeah. And so I, I don't get why you do performance capture or motion capture for your final version of Doom, who isn't him. It's it's the mouthless Deadpool. Mm. Same situation. Oh, same studio. Mm. Uh, also, the th- you speculated that they got somebody else to do the thing. No, it was Jamie Bell on, on like, stilts. Oh, no, no, I'm sure it was Jamie Bell on stilts. What I did say was, it feels like Jamie Bell spent four minutes doing performance... <laughs> I wasn't, no, he's barely in the movie. Mm. He's sad, he's crying, he barely talks, he's not the thing. And I think the thing, the part of it that made me go, oh, fuck you, was actually really early on. Young Ben Grimm is uh, helping to run a junkyard or something, and he he runs in to uh, find his brother with his friends, and his brother's an older teenager watching TV, and his brother gets up and goes, hey, you, you, you took away the power converter or something like that, and then starts smacking his younger brother around and going, hey, hey, it's clobbering time. And I went, no, no, you've fucking fallen at the first hurdle. You will never recover from this movie. You cannot make it's clobbering time something an abuser shouted at Ben Grimm. Fuck you. And the movie never won me back from that first moment. It's bad. That it's that that is one of the worst decisions I've seen in a history of watching poorly realized Marvel and superhero films. Okay, the film is interminably dull. People say it was going well when when they recount for like Josh Trank had it well together, and then it goes off the rails when during that one year later and it hits the reshoots. No. That the reshoots just make you realize, oh shit, I was like holding on for this better get good. Like it's just barely holding on. Michael B. Jordan is in it a little bit and he's quite charming, but he's again barely there. Miles Teller is a wet splat of an on screen presence. If you put him in a movie with Ty Sheridan, I'd be like, I'm seeing double here. Four crusties. Miles Teller's a terrible casting. Uh, I don't see why Jamie Bell got the job of Ben Grimm. He brings nothing to the table that even remotely made me think of Ben Grimm. Even the the CG Ben Grimm that I see as the thing, I'm like, that's not the thing. That's that's Korg's brother-in-law that he hates. And Jamie Bell's great. I like Jamie Bell, oh yeah, yeah. He was, he was wonderful in Rocket Man. He was good in King Kong. Billy Elliot, good guy. But he's not Ben Grimm. And Kate Mara... 
I think just did really well because she's smart as hell in real life, or at least conveyed to us that she was smart as hell and self-possessed and was talking about music and patterns and, and she's serious and clearly a huge step up from the, all the, the nothing that Paul Jessica Alba got given. By the way, at the end of Silver Surfer, the second or the, the, the third Fantastic Four movie, she's in Japan getting married again. And it's a lady of Mexican descent who's been made to look as white as possible wearing a Japanese yukata to get married. And I'm like, this feels like three kinds of racist. <laughs> I am not blaming Jessica Alba on this. And from the sounds of it, she had a hard fucking life as well. This is more to do with ridiculously unimaginative uh, creators and people who didn't think about what, what they were saying meant. If you were going to describe what type of film this is, what type of movie is it? Um... Uh... It's a unique, original. Uh, do you want one word? No, you no. Oh, feel right. free to. It's a, a unique, original telling of a beloved comic book. Why is it a beloved comic book? Because it's Marvel's first family. Do you guys feel like a family? Is this a, yeah. is this a camaraderie? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how did let, let's yes yes yeah obviously you guys have worked on films with with a larger cast before is is there something different about this experience because you seem like your energy I'm getting is like you're a close knit bunch what's different about this experience versus other experiences you may have had we're making a movie about a family and about a team so um, it's definitely uh, very lucky that we have this sort of like easy chemistry because that does not always happen um, but yeah I mean we experience this whole thing together and it is quite a unique experience to go through so um, you know that makes it different than any other movie I've done last question if like let's say I was in a back alley and I needed help like could you actually throw down like could you save me I mean me and Miles I mean depends on what's happening if a guy has a gun I'm not like running in there to help you bro but like depends on what it is like you know, yeah. what's happening to you in this back alley? Shady I, shit. I, I, shady I, shit? I, shady stuff. Shady stuff? Yeah. Like I I said, I'd have to assess the situation before I, like, <laughs> lended myself. I have a career to look at. You know? Could I trust Jamie? <laughs> no. Quiet like that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You're fun. The middle section, when they come back from the uh, negative zone, and they've all got powers, so Sue's going invisible, Ben's a big old pile of rocks, Johnny's on fire, and Reed's all stretchy. I mean, it's fucking gross. Yes, yes it is. It's clearly body horror, and this is what Josh Trank was trying to do. He was trying to say, imagine the real Fantastic Four, though. I've gone for what looks like Christopher Nolan-style, uh, sort of dark, realistic, gritty... Uh, no, Josh, you started with the powers, bad. But what if you really were on fire? Like, your skin would melt off and you'd be screaming. And, like, what if you were really made of rocks? That'd be bad. You'd have Which, a rock dick or not. Reading the, the Grant Morrison story? Hmm. Yeah, they do that. They do that. They, they, uh, Sue gets switched and has johnny's powers briefly mm. and is in torment because she's on fire yeah but he started with the idea of i'm going to really convey how frightening it would be to get any of these powers of the fantastic four completely forgetting that general audiences don't flock to body horror no can you think of the last really gross film that people went to see in droves that wasn't also very funny 
No, they end up as cult classics and they do so for a reason. Yeah. Somebody said The Thing. Josh Trank thought they meant The Thing. They'll make horror movie money, but you have to have a horror movie budget for that. <laughs> they won't make superhero money, especially if you don't want to do a superhero film. Mm, you don't like superheroes, you think comics are super lame, and you're working for Fox, who have a habit of going, Oh fuck, this isn't broad enough, let's make it broader, and grabbing things and taking them away from you. See what happened with James Mangold's The Wolverine, where the third act went completely loopy. Yeah, and here's the thing. We have the evidence that James Mangold could have done a lot better with that, because we've seen Logan. Logan, yeah. Or Gavin Hood going, right, so X-Men Origins The Wolverine is going to be about the fact that Logan has PTSD. And Fox went, no, it's not. <laughs> it's going to have Deadpool in it. No, it won't. Okay, do you want to make money? <laughs> uh, and, and the whole film, like, around about the middle section, just becomes about, okay, so let's get the four back together because Reed's fucked off. And then they go back, find Doom, he comes back, kills loads of people, then goes back, tries to, uh, uh, make, gets a big sky beam, a big blue sky beam. Who else had big blue sky beam? Check that one off your bingo card. Frankly, at this point, the only reason I know John Peters wasn't involved mm. is that there's no spider in it. Yeah. And then the Fantastic Four go, we got to reverse the polarity on the doobly-doo. And they do, and they beat him, and it, uh, Jamie Bell goes, it's clobber in time. And... Then they get they are negotiating with the American government and go, no, we do not agree. We want a building all of our own. We want all the military funding, all the hardware, and we want you to do whatever we want. And the government go, okay. Yeah, no. No. At that point, they go, oh, well, in that case, no, you're on your own. And then they get given all of that, and they go, so what should we call ourselves? And then Jamie Bell goes, oh, it's going to be fantastic. And then Miles Teller goes, wait a minute, say that one more time. Credits. Oh my god, it, it, it might actually be the worst Marvel film I've seen. It's worse than Spirits of Vengeance, the second Ghost Rider movie, because at least that one has Screaming at the Door! Is it worse than Elektra? I think it is, because Elektra had a lesbian kiss with typhoid. Fucking Jennifer Garner's easy on the eye. Tear it, stamp a stick. But yeah, there's not much in this. Elektra is right down the bottom, but it feels like... Fantastic Four 2015 is so much worse because they'd had examples of really great comic book movies. So a decade since 2005. Iron Man, Thor, Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, X-Men First Class, Hancock, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. They had no excuse going, we want to be this level of successful, but we don't want to do anything those movies did. Almost immediately after it released and uh, critics finally got a hold of it and nailed it to the wall and went, nope, this is shit, it is a 9% by aggregate with a realistic margin of difference. Josh Trank tweeted famously, A year ago I had a fantastic version of this, and it would have received great reviews. You'll probably never see it. That's reality though. And I say, bollocks. The only way you could have had a really fantastic version is if there was something good in your film. In any of what we saw. And there's nothing good apart from Kate Mara being visually more clever than the version of Sue Storm we've seen before. Just that modicum of respect you gave her character, or someone gave her character, shone through a little bit. It's 
but that is such slim pickings. There isn't a word, there isn't a shot, there isn't a frame, there isn't a sequence, there isn't an iota of this movie that is fantastic. Even the word fantastic. They stuck a four in the middle of it so that it would not be fantastic. So was it? It also reeks of, of uh, you know, obviously it's it predates uh, Zack Snyder going. Oh, I had a cut yes. and yeah. it was going to be great, and then eventually he got to go back and and elongate the version of Justice League that we'd seen so that but it was longer and more dour. While he did lean into it after the fact, at least Zack Snyder did not initiate all of that himself. Hmm. People went, well, this is not amazing, but he was removed, therefore there must be something better that he would have done. And he went, oh, maybe they're right. Also, you have to read between the lines and and understand that people don't necessarily tell the truth. Often they just tell the truth as they see it. In this case, I had a version of this film in my head that was going to work, but then we started shooting. I was as high as a kite at the time, of course. What did you say you took? (laughs) Ayahuasca. He was off his tits on ayahuasca, allegedly, according to Sharon. And he was like, oh man, we're going to go to the moon with this film? And that's the film he's reporting on in that tweet. But then they turned the cameras on, started shooting, and it turned out that he and Miles Teller did not get on, and neither did he and Fox. So. The film was a disaster. It cost between 120 and 155 million. Apparently it's 122, so it's closer to the first than the other, but obviously they had to put it on the side of buses as well. Also that may, may be like, this was what the starting budget was, mm. this is what the ending was. And it took 167 million, so at least it broke even with the roundabout. Josh Trank has nothing to complain about. The directors of Batgirl have something to complain about. There is that. The director and the stars of Fantastic Four 1994 have something to complain about. A lot of Josh Trank's fan stick did actually turn up on screen. He has to take responsibility for that. Okay, so part two, where we actually talk about what they could do, but also who these people are. we've seen it done right in the comics. Maybe sometimes that we were like, eh, wasn't too keen on that. In contrast to the underachieving that we saw on screen, I'd actually say Morbius was a better realization of the characters than Fan Stick. Because I don't give a toss about Morbius, but it felt somewhat in his ballpark, whereas this, the Josh Trank film, felt like it was running full pelt away from being the Fantastic Four. Mm to the point where it was unrecognizable and just honestly give Josh Trank the money, a small amount of money to make his body horror and make it not the Fantastic Four. Uh, People who have been charitable said he wasn't ready for the big leagues, but the way he was uh, conducting himself on set, I don't think he was really ready to be a filmmaker. The thing with Morbius though is I don't recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall seeing people who were like avid fans of the Morbius comic character going, you did Michael Dirty. No. (laughs) I don't recall that either. I must find plasma with my hand holes. (laughs) He's always been done dirty, folks. 
Okay, so what you said earlier, I, I had already written this when you started talking about it. Don't start with the powers and then think of the situations that these powers can be used in. Then string those situations into a collection of scenes with the rough length of a film. Start with a firm grasp of not only the classic characters, but how to make them work now. After 25 solid years of superhero movies, including three Fantastic Four films that very few people loved, and two Incredibles films that did this family better. It's noteworthy that of the four films we've just talked about, three of them were origin films. The one that wasn't an origin film, Silver was Surfer, the was the better of all of them. It's still just okay, but it kind of went, okay, so what next? We've got these powers. Now move on. Unfortunately for Sue, what's next involved a very lengthy wedding argument. Yeah. And what was next for Reed was, listen, the most important thing is wedding. Oh no, the world's about to end. Uh, I mean, I guess we could still do the wedding, but with the world about to end, let's just focus on the wedding. Are you sure, Sue? Because it does feel like the world's about to end. And also, like, again, this is... It felt like Sue was being a smidge unreasonable. We don't know how to do relationship unless it involves focusing on the beginning elements of relationship. Yeah. Now, Reed's powers have frequently been used on screen in a way that makes an audience go... Ah! Mainly because in the 2005 film, the CGI wasn't really there yet, but also the things that they chose to have him do were kind of gross to look at. Even down to the stretching his suit. You pointed out he stretches his arm across the hallway to get some toilet paper while Johnny watches down the corridor in a fun montage. And you went, he's wearing the suit. He's pooping in the suit. And I said, maybe he's got a butt flap. But now I'm thinking, maybe he wasn't even really sat on the toilet either. <laughs> So, what I would suggest is make Reed's powers delightful. Make them varied and look at Elastigirl for starters. Just the, the obviously it's a, it's a much more cartoonish environment, but ultimately if he turns into a parachute to help save someone, obviously people go, well, that's the Incredibles, but do something like that with his head poking out the side and people will go, that's kind of cool. The um, animated series take on the Black Panther comics issue. Yeah. Ben gets thrown across the screen and Reed turns into like a giant blanket to catch him. So it can be done. Uh, he should turn into a giant baseball glove and he'd be like, I thought you'd like that one. Did you see the game? What game? Just any of them. <laughs> <laughs> But Richard's powers go so far beyond long, stretchy, bendy arms. In the Grant Morrison story, one, two, three, four, while he's deep in meditative thought, he grows new portions of his brain. He has control of his body on a cellular level. There is so much more that smart writers could do with a smart man. Consult with actual physicists like the way Brian Cox helped to craft the film Sunshine from 2007. Reed can also be a complete dork and kind of a dick, but not a complete dick. 
I don't know that I believe anyone's 100% a dick, man. He needs to also be in danger of getting a little too detached, not just from Sue, but from humanity. It needs to be very obvious that they've studied various kinds of people on the spectrum and gone, he's obviously very high functioning in some regards, but he has glaring weaknesses in others. Yeah, uh, I believe that's in the Grant Morrison book. Mm. Uh, Sue is theorizing with Alicia that she's she's been reading about what back then was called Asperger's syndrome and speculating that Reed might have something mm. along those lines. He, in several of the books we read, uh, he retired to his chambers and had a in deep thought, do not disturb sign out front. We're talking introspection, introversion, and practically going into a trance to think about things on a level that we can't fathom. Yeah, and if that's your read, and it should be, frankly, then the point of the family is that if this is how he saves the universe, the family has to be why he saves the universe, because otherwise there is that risk that he is eventually just going to unhook and not have any reason to apply these thoughts practically anymore. I am going to spoil the Jonathan Hickman three-parter, uh, solve everything a little bit here. I'm not going to tell you the ending, folks, but uh, the, the premise is Reed opens a, a wormhole and goes to meet some shadowy figures he's been talking to beyond the wormhole and they turn out to be three alternate versions of Reed Richards. One who's on fire, one who goes invisible, and one of them who's in more of a high-tech suit. And they take him to a citadel where there's a grand courtroom of Reed Richards. And they all converge in this place to help each other with, with the problems of their own dimensions. That's, that's a great premise for a movie, or at least the Reed side of one particular story. It's also a good way to get some of the previous Reed Richards, including that poor sap from 1994, back into this one. Potentially so, yes. Although my... And John Krasinski. Thought, well, yeah. My immediate thought when that happened was, Reed has gone inwards, and this is him con connecting His with mind palace. multiple facets of himself. Yeah. All of whom can offer different takes on the situation yeah. he finds himself facing. Effectively, yeah, that's it's um, it's Evelyn from uh, Everything Everywhere Absolutely. All at Once. Like anybody who walked into this machine mm. would find a council of numerous versions of themselves. They ask him if he wants to join. He gets a week to think about it. Then he joins. Then the Celestials attack. It's a right palaver. But at one point, one of them says to him, he asks, you know, what are we going to do about Johnny and Sue and, and all the Franklins and, uh, and Ben's out there and, and uh, Valeria, who is their uh, daughter, who was born in 1999. Um, and the Reed he's talking to goes, don't you understand? All of us had to give that up. And it's like, once again, information that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. All of us have to give up being family men in order to be part of this. That's a really good way of putting like, of putting this story across to people who don't think like Reed, but getting them to go, oh, so it's like this. Because you can always sell Reed to people who are on the spectrum. Not everyone on the spectrum is gonna, gonna not think, well, he's a dick and I wouldn't do that. But if you've got something and it's got letters, then chances are you're going to at least sort of understand the difficulties and challenges he faces in just being normal. Well, here's what it comes down to. Oh, sorry. Just being what you are told is normal. Just being neurotypical. Yeah, here's what it comes down to. Reed Richards does not think like everyone else. Yeah. And there are going to be more than one person in the world who thinks that way, but not a lot of them. Yeah. The uh, original film, it was kind of like, brilliant scientist, Dr. Reed Richards. 
Um, the two middle films, it was like, this guy's a fucking nerd, but okay. Then the third film is like, yes, this guy is a smart kid who looks somewhere between 16 and 32. There are uh, current theories in some areas of neurodivergent study that are speculating being what they used to call, and in some areas still do, gifted is a facet of neurodivergence because it does mean that your brain does not operate the way that society generally considers to be the standard. By, I mean, all spectrum aside, Reed was written from the very beginning as having a brain that does not function like regular people, Mm. meaning he is neuroatypical. And while people often like to focus on the benefits of that, there are always going to be uh, elements that hamper you as much as they help you. But one of the reasons people love Spider-Man is because he sacrifices. He lays what he wants down on on behalf of what must be done. And people haven't warmed to the Fantastic Four because we don't see that sacrificing side of themselves. And ultimately, if Reed visibly has to sacrifice something that you know would be good for him and potentially the world for his family and have him weigh up whether he can do more good with the people who love him than on his collective own. That's something that will endear people to him. The other major aspect is Marvel began this universe with a guy who was incredibly smart and a dick and he had to be charismatic and funny so that you could sell that to audiences. Because if he was just Miles Teller, people would go, I don't like this ugly splat of a boy. (laughs) And then your MCU falls apart immediately. I think you're onto something about the sacrifice because ultimately the one thing that people have often said about the Fantastic Four is that the difference- They're kind of Marvel aristocracy. Yeah. The key difference between them and a group like say the X-Men where a big part of it is everyone hates you because you're different. Mm. The Fantastic Four have always been like this celebrity family that everybody adores. Now, if They're the ones that get to go on Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, if you frame it around the idea that that is how the outside world perceives them, but on the interior they are dealing with the fact, uh, with, with elements like Reed is gradually drawing away from his family because of his uh, pursuit of intellectual uh, interests. Sue has to deal with the fact that she is married to somebody who she feels increasingly more distant from. Johnny has this everybody adores him persona but deep down he is feeling empty and unable to connect with anyone. He's living the Fonzie life and it's unfulfilling. Indeed. And Ben has this thing of I'm made of fucking rocks I can't touch anything. And is that something that he has to process as well? They are, they he are owns all... that 2005 movie, Michael Chiklis. There's just little bits like uh, the woman he was supposed to marry decides against it, throws the wedding ring down on the ground, and he sort of stoops down in a crowded bridge street, and he just tries to pick up the wedding ring, and he can't. Yeah. And he that just was big, that was such a big fingers, and eventually Reed bends down and picks it up, and just it's a nice little tender moment between men, mm. which doesn't happen all that no, often. It so yeah, Chickless owns that but, first. But yeah, if you frame them as movie. the world adores what it sees of them, but what it doesn't see is that even though they look like this connected unit there are things isolating each and every one of them. Mm. Also, there's the cult of celebrity, which uh, in modern day parlance means they'd have prying cameras all the time. Mm. Sue would get photos of her in rag magazines of like her getting out of the shower and yawning. And it's like, Sue Storm drunk. Ben Grimm sleeps naked in an oxygen tent, which he believes gives him sexual powers. Mm. Hey, that's a half truth. (laughs) 
She's invisible all the time so that people will stop filming her. Absolutely. And Nando V Movies did quite a good casting call and a sort of a, a thought-provoking sort of out loud, this is what these characters are like. Several of them I was like, oh, no way. Jamie Dornan as Doctor... Was that Doctor Doom or The Thing? Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom. My God. He is so rubbish in Robin Hood. You want to talk about some uncharismatic splats of men? <laughs> I'm not even going to bring up the Fifty Shades of Grey, because obviously then you have to throw Dakota Johnson, who was also possibly cast as Sue Storm, under the bus. Either way, he had reasons to, to, to say uh, uh, Jamie Dornan. However, the one he brought up for Reed Richards, I was like, that is inspired. That is so inspired, it's probably actually going to happen. William Jackson Harper. Chidi Anagonye in The Good Place. Here you go. <laughs> I, I just saw a trillion different realities folding onto each other like thin sheets of metal forming a single blade. Yeah, yeah, the time knife. We've all seen it. Let's get back on track, bud. Oh, okay, sure. What I was saying um, before, you know, I saw the time knife is this. Sean is also right. The four of us becoming better people could be a fluke. So let's repeat the experiment. It's what Simone taught us about data collection. Try it again and see if you get the same results. This is so stupid. Believably smart as fuck. Believably totally a nerd. Believably his own worst enemy in terms of he goes inside his head and he can't get out of it. Believably socially maladjusted. Young, hot, like he can really do stuff. His comic timing's fantastic. He could totally play Reed Richards. And by the time this goes out, I expect for that to have become announced. It's either him or Jamie Dornan. I don't know. And it also puts considerable distance between him and Tony Stark because uh, Harper and Downey Jr. are hugely different. Yeah, one of them is so cool that everyone around him wants to be recognised by Tony Stark. Oh, I was just going to say, and the other one's Robert Downey Jr. Oh, <laughs> No. For this, let's go to Charlie Hoopert from Charisma on Command. So let's take a look at how some tiny habits make Robert Downey Jr. and Tony Stark come across as very cool, while Chris Evans and Captain America come across as something else entirely. Let's begin with the most noticeable habit, how frequently Robert Downey Jr. and Tony Stark both use sarcasm. So here's Robert Downey Jr. accepting the award for Best Actor at the 2013 Choice Awards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you've chosen wisely. Good looking out. Clearly Robert is just kidding, but sarcasm is a habit that he has. Specifically, he takes a lot of opportunities to jokingly elevate himself. Tony Stark is very much the same way, joking that people miss him when he arrives in Iron Man 2. Oh, it's good to be back. You missed me. And both Tony Stark and Robert are not shy about telling you the amazing things that their lifestyle can afford without playing up any false humility. He answers the question as if it's no big deal, even though everyone else in the world wouldn't be able to tell that story without a big grin on their face. Robert does something similar. Here is an example of all the cast members responding when asked if they've been able to take any small mementos home from the set of The Avengers. Did you guys take anything from the set, uh, a memento, any piece of your, your costume or anything like that? 
I would have stolen everything I'm just from the set. Like, I just, I would not be doing that with Marvel. Like, they just, they know everything. They do, they have a strict inventory of all that stuff? So the stage is set here. No one on the cast took anything. They were too nervous to do that because Marvel and Disney are so locked down about everything that's on the set. Then Robert chimes in and says this without even smiling. Uh, on Age of Ultron, there was a massive Avengers A, which is outside the uh, Avengers Center. Uh-huh. I have it. Where is it? I said, I said uh, why is this in, in England? Send it back to L.A. I'll put it in my office. They're like, seriously? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll wait. And it's there? I have it. You have it, right. Everybody else smiles because of how cool that is, but Robert purposely doesn't even act very amused with it. He is unabashed when it comes to making jokes that elevate his status and even in telling true stories that elevate his status. And he tells all of that in ways that make it seem totally normal for him, which it is because he's Robert Downey Jr. All of that creates an aura of cool. He is absolutely not bashful in the limelight. In fact, he thrives on it and even jokes that he deserves much more of it. Chris Evans handles things very, very differently, kind of like you might imagine the Captain America would. He downplays his own role when the limelight comes to him and he thanks everyone else. Oh man, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who the people, the people, the people who voted. Thank you to the people who, uh, who love movies, who, who, who see movies, who are passionate about movies. Without you guys, uh, I'm lost. So, so thank you for giving me a, a purpose. And thank you to all the people that I worked with last year. I, I, I watched some really amazing people do amazing things. So, so thank you. Now this is the same award we just watched Robert win a minute ago, just two years later. Interestingly, Chris doesn't make a joke about he deserves it. He just says thank you sincerely. That choice between joking and sincerity will come up in your life every single time you receive any kind of compliment or praise. Responding one way isn't better than the other, but the one that you tend towards will have a huge impact in how you're perceived. Choose to be sincere more often, and people will see you as gracious, genuine, and kind. Choose to crack the joke more often, and people will see you as funny and composed. It is worth mentioning though that the type of joke that you crack has a huge impact. There is a large difference between being self-deprecating, as Chris Evans does at the end of this speech. I'll say 30, 40, 40% of the votes were my mom, but the other 60%, it really, really means a lot to me. I'm, I'm and being self-aggrandizing like we saw Robert do before. Again, there is a trade-off. Self-deprecating jokes won't upset anyone, but if you do them too often, you risk coming off as very insecure. Self-aggrandizing jokes will typically come off as more cool, but some people are going to think that you're just arrogant. One last wrinkle to add to this whole joking idea is that there's a huge difference between smiling when you crack a joke and not smiling. You see, sometimes the line between joking and seriousness is not obvious. In those cases, we look to context clues to tell us whether or not the person is joking or kind of just being a jerk. Typically, the biggest clue is whether or not they laugh and smile. If they don't smile, it can leave us kind of confused. While uh, Chris Hemsworth, who we only just found out a day or so ago, is taking a break from acting because of a debilitating condition, and that's just fucking heartbreaking. That he has the potential. Potential. He, he has not developed it yet. He's okay. got the genetic markers that suggest it is a possibility for okay. him. Okay. <sighs> uh, but yeah, he, he was always kind of very pally in interviews and things, but RDJ keeps everyone at a slight distance. You kind of always want to try and impress RDJ so that he will grace you with a little laugh or something like that. Mm. Um, whereas William Jackson Harper is not at all like going to turn up and be the coolest guy in the room, and that 
will absolutely work to Reed's characterization as someone who is extremely smart, but does not know at all how to utilize that to end up at the top of the social ladder. Principally because being at the top of the social ladder has never been Reed's interest. That's Johnny. But also, you need to make Reed a dad. None of the four movies have done that so far. Like He was definitely old enough to play a dad in those two middle ones and the first one, not Miles Teller. But it's a family. Lean into that. If we're not doing the origin first, they've got Franklin already. Maybe not Valeria yet. But Franklin is always kept a little boy in the comics. Like, he was born in 1968, only seven years after the comic started. He has been a little kid forever. It's quite frightening. There's been a lot of, like, flashes into the future where Franklin Richards is, like, a super-advanced being. Uh, but he always stays a youngish boy. And I'd say the MCU version of Franklin is a chance to have maybe not necessarily an actor, because this is a hell of a lot of responsibility to place on young shoulders, but at least a character can grow, can in fact reach maturity over a number of films. And it's really important that Reed and Sue are mom and dad now. Not these two blushing people who don't know how to get on with each other, and they might tie the knot or they might not. We've done that. It's been done. Now they're mom and dad. That's a fundamental cornerstone if you're gonna get this right. Sue also has to be smart as hell. You cannot walk back from Kate Mara. You certainly can't just reduce her to the amount of nothing that poor Jessica Alba was given. She needs to be mature and pithy, intuitive, subtle and shrewd. She gets herself into trouble, but she also gets herself out of it. You know, remember when Elastigirl was sneaking around the complex da -da 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 -da, in the first one? She's a spy. Make that Sue and have her invisibility be really fucking useful. She's the invisible woman, not force field girl. Yeah, I, I also think that it would be nigh on impossible for the MCU at this point to go backwards on its presentation of female characters. They, they have advanced a lot mm. in recent years and it would be shocking to see them wind yeah. it back to uh, background girl. But yeah, say she's sneaky with her invisibility and fascinated by her force field, so she's interested in what she can do. Also, whatever clothes she wears have to go invisible via contact. Yes, for the love of God, stop having her strip off in public. It means she won't have to have a special suit all the time that can attune to her invisibility, that anything she's touching in direct contact with her body mm. will go invisible well, too. here's what you do. It's an extension of the force field. She creates a particular type of force field that can reflect light. Therefore, it's around whatever is in immediate contact with her. Mm -hmm. But that also makes it a fine extension of her power that could make for some tense sequences where she has to juggle many things to keep invisible by touching them. You could actually get tension out of the fact that she can go invisible. Rather, like, because you've got two things that you can do with invisibility. You can create tension where you're trying to keep someone invisible so that they don't get found out. And you can create terror where there's someone invisible in the room and we've all seen The Invisible Man and it gave us nightmares. I've heard plenty of people say John Krasinski, Emily Blunt for, uh, for these two. I also think it was really neat that we got to see Krasinski in uh, Multiverse of Madness because at least then it's like, in some version of reality, it is John Krasinski. But I do think that William Jackson Harper would be a way better and more welcome MCU version of Reed Richards. But also, there's a very 
significant real-world reason why you don't cast a husband and wife to play a husband and wife on screen that you want to keep coming back for 10, 20 years. It puts an insane amount of pressure on their real-life relationship, because if they are having marital difficulties and just want to take a break from each other for whatever reason that is their private lives, but they got to go back on set and do the Marvel thing, you got to work out a way to make one of them not there or recast or some shit like that. And ultimately, actors can have a rapport with each other. It's called acting. So Emily Blunt would make for an excellent Sue Storm. Smart as hell, no one would argue against that. Another one that was mentioned, and I've got this lady earmarked for Emma Frost. Vanessa Kirby of Hobbs and Shaw. She acted the screen off of Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 6, turning up playing ostensibly the daughter of Vanessa Redgrave's character from the first film. She's fucking fantastic. Could absolutely play Sue Storm. The third one that I was like, oh, Margot Robbie. If DC aren't going to do anything with her, then give her as much producing power as she needs as Sue Storm. Okay, Johnny is a flyboy and that can get annoying to viewers really fast, so he has to have more than just effortless boyish charm and good looks. He needs to love being a superhero, but kind of lean into it a little bit too hard. He uh, needs to have a vulnerable side and be aware that a lot of what he projects is to overcompensate. I think if he's kind of the public face of the Fantastic Four and he, he ruminates on that too much, but ultimately, after those movies where Chris Evans became the most important thing on screen twice, you can probably leave Johnny for this first film and, and, and develop his issues later on. But also, just constantly being a playboy, he needs to not so much settle down, but not necessarily find fulfillment in being kind of a tomcat. Well, his issues are going to be blatantly apparent, even if it's even if his character is fairly light in the first movie. Even Willow picked up on the fact that he is wildly insecure. Yeah. And ultimately, his power set involves doing something that keeps everybody at a distance. And even though the Human Torch, like the Thing, is the easiest one to get the kids to like, I also feel like make him a teenage heartthrob. Make the romantic side of his character a draw. We don't see romance all that much in Marvel. It is totally possible to be PG levels of sexy and imply an adult relationship without making it inappropriate for children. We used to do that in cinema all the time. You ever see The Lion King? Those two cats are going to Bone Town, baby. And I'm not talking about the elephant's graveyard. effectively about connection, emotional distancing, mm. physical distancing, and reconnection, for the for, for most people, sex is a factor in those things. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, Johnny is hooked up with Crystal, who is one of the uh, Inhumans. We don't necessarily need to bring the fucking Inhumans back. And fuck it, if you want to make Johnny gay, Iceman as well. Eh? Fire and ice. There's an interesting concept. <laughs> Johnny and Bobby would leave puddles all over the bed. Uh, the casting possibilities 
uh, included Manny Jacinto, who is Jason in The Good Place, who I would love to see uh, uh, hooked up with uh, William Jackson Harper again. And he is, again, funny as hell, super attractive, just crackling with charisma. And it would be really nice to see him play someone who's not a bonehead, but can certainly eat the camera up. However, the other suggestion from Nanda, which I'm totally down with, was Dev Patel. Yes. It's almost too much spotlight for him. He's kind of low-key in, in what he does. Yes, but if you are putting Johnny sort of slightly to the background in mm. the first one, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, he was electric in The Green Knight. He was fan-fucking-tastic in David Copperfield. And he needs a break because friggin' The Last Airbender did not give him that. You may also have noticed that I am veering away from the white, 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 and white version of the Fantastic Four. Ben Grimm might be the hardest of the four to cast, and there's one guy who would be so great at voicing him in an animated version, I don't know why they haven't just built this show around him. John DiMaggio. Come on, universe, you big, mostly empty wuss! Give me all the juice you got! I'm gonna go build my own theme park with blackjack and hookers. In fact, forget the park. I bet you Leela's holding out for a nice guy with one eye. That'll take forever. What she ought to do is find a nice guy with two eyes and poke one out. I'm not actually rich. I'm a fraud. A poor, lazy, sexy fraud. I can't see what's happening. Are we boned? Yeah, we're boned. I'll go build my own Lunar Lander with blackjack. And hookers! In fact, forget the Lunar Lantern and the Blackjack! Ben is an incredibly tough casting call. Of all of them, he needs to be the most lovable, the most vulnerable, and the most physical actor, despite almost certainly being in performance capture for the duration. We're talking Rocket Raccoon here. He will thus be expensive, so do not waste him. Every time he's on screen, the viewer has to be at Paddington levels of joy. And I've compared Rocket to Paddington in the past. It would definitely help if he was born in Brooklyn, preferably Yancey Street for the most authenticity. Uh, also, it would help if he's Jewish. This is something that uh, Nando also pointed out with Jack Kirby's uh, Jewish background and Aunt Petunia's ever-loving blue-eyed thing, Benjamin J. Grimm, being Jewish. It's true to the character. A while back, I was saying The Rock. The Rock is the only guy in the world lovable enough to play Ben Grimm that the whole audience would all flock to see. And I still think he could absolutely do that. The most important thing is that the people making the movie grasp this fundamental aspect of Ben Grimm. He is a good man. In the same way that Steve Rogers is. Both created by Jack Kirby, he may be grumpy, but he has a massive beating heart. During Civil War, Reed was pro-registration. J. Michael Straczynski's rationale for that was that Reed's uncle attempted to stonewall the American government during the McCarthy witch trials, and his life was destroyed. Sue, however, is on Captain America's side, considering the way the protocols are enforced to be barbaric. Ben is stuck in the middle after Johnny's almost beaten to death by regular humans frightened of superpowers in a nightclub. He doesn't want to fight his own government, but he won't be a militant attack dog sent to bring in superpowered children. The kids are rioting, the police are being brutal, everyone's demanding Ben come over to their team, and if he doesn't register, he'll be sent to super jail along with the villains. 
but the comic version of Steve Rogers' side is so desperate not to be beaten that they lose sight of innocent civilians caught in the conflict, which disgusts Ben. This, by the way, is having them fight on a deserted runway in the movie was a much better idea. Ben's solution? He leaves the country. It might seem like running away from a problem, but ultimately, it's a collision of his ethics. And as a good man who loves his country and wants to see it do better, he takes himself off the playing board. Of course, the way Straczynski writes this and the way Ben's always been portrayed in the Marvel Universe, he is privileged enough to be able to not have to make that choice. A lot of folks stuck in the middle of civil war don't have that privilege. When he returns, he continues to join neither side but protects people. Ben is a simple guy who boils things down. He won't listen to someone's highfalutin ideals if someone small could be hurt. Most important is a gruff, avuncular attitude and a sense of isolation from the human race that conversely endears him to all of us in a way more like Ron Perlman's Hellboy. So Ron Perlman, in that 2004 movie when he's got all those cats and he likes candy bars, you warm to him instantly. Little kids like Hellboy as a result. But my idea for a, a Ben Grimm, I started with Jonah Hill. I was looking at Jewish actors. And I was like, no, he's got this squeaky little voice. And I thought, the more you mess with it electronically, the more it will not sound like the person I'm talking about. And he'll just sort of sound like a, a robotic version of Jonah Hill. He's definitely got the comedy props and he's got the physicality. And I'd love to see him in a dramatic role like that. And he's obviously been doing stuff like that, working with Ridley Scott and uh, Scorsese. And then I thought of his other buddy. You got it? I okay. know where you're going. Seth Rogen. Yeah. As the thing. Yeah. He's got a voice everyone already loves. Yeah. He's very easy on the ear. It's clobbering time. Just, the, uh, he would just make the kids love Ben straight away. He can slim down a little bit, bulk up, muscle up a little bit for playing Ben on screen pre-thing. Hey! What's the problem? I'll tell you the problem. What? You're the problem, man. You're everything that's wrong with this fucking country. Because you're an old, rich, white piece of shit, and your media conglomerate is ruining this planet. Enough. I'm done anyway. I had more time with you than I thought I would. So joke's on you. Excuse me. Thank you. Whoa, shit. One of the notes in the more recent comics is that one week per year, because of uh, scientific advancements, Ben is able to return to his human form. So if that can happen in an upcoming film, then we get to have him really try to use that week as much as he can. And of course, invariably, it will happen at a time when he, in Hickman's run, he is unable to prevent an absolute calamity because of the one week he is just Ben Grimm. It's also worthy of note that in his rock form, Ben doesn't age. So when he becomes human again, he is physically the same person he was before he got hit by cosmic rays. This doesn't mean much in the short term, but in one of the Hickman stories we read, Reed traveled far, far into the future in leaps of hundreds and then thousands of years and got to witness mankind evolving culturally, technologically, and eventually biologically. But Ben Grimm is still alive because he only ages by a week every year. This gives the character a lonely vigil, made all the more poignant by the fact that he is so simple as a guy. So while he's happy that the people of Earth have succeeded and flourished, hundreds and hundreds of years from now, 
he just misses cheeseburgers. But yeah, ultimately, uh, Ben's kind of the easiest to do by sticking to who he is. You just got to get that casting right. You don't need to change Ben too much. He can still feel like the version of him. And have him always stick up for the little guy. Never abuse his power. So, like, when Doctor Strange made Pizza Papa beat himself up, that's just mean, man. <laughs> On that note, the Ghostbusters effect. Now, the Tim Story films did actually kind of do this. New York City needs to love these guys. Big cheering crowds, placards. When Ben spray paints a big four onto his craggy mountainous chest, we want folks watching in cinemas to want to do exactly the same thing. I'm gonna go home and spray paint my chest. And we want to feel like we're in on it. Ultimately the Avengers was, and I said this back in 2012, kind of a modern day update of Ghostbusters. No one's ever done a big New York film in quite the same way, with the exception of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And the whole, you know, we love you, Spider-Man, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. You have that as a high point for them, but you also have it as a source of anxiety, so that then when the crowds turn, you really feel a loss. Because it's like, hang on, you loved us when we were flying high, and especially if the crowds turn on them when they've still done the right thing, it's just displeased everyone that would be a moment. You can kind of play with the idea of celebrity and it being itself kind of a trap, and you can make Ben feel like he's in several kinds of traps. I would suggest somebody like Michael Giacchino on scoring duties, bring that energy from The Incredibles, and go for a big, gutsy, John Williams-style score, but with Giacchino's modern sensibilities and fill that soundtrack with puns. And it needs a great memorable hook with a central theme that makes you think one, two, three, four. Just musically speaking, you have to kind of be counting to four all the time. And the four needs to be a... Boom! Because that's the thing. The thing, yeah. And Giacchino is really good at getting those hooks. Like you, I, I could whistle you the Spider-Man theme now. I could whistle you the Doctor Strange theme, the Star Trek theme. Five years ago, Bob Chipman did a How to Do the Fantastic Four in the MCU. We watched it again this morning. I, I didn't want to repeat it unwittingly, not knowing that I was saying something that had trickled into my head and then was from there. I wanted to be able to differentiate it. Uh, he suggested that you start them in the 60s, so they're time displaced, much like Captain America, and they bring that uh, fresh-faced Kennedy-era spacefaring energy from that time, which was pre-Watergate and you bring them into the modern age, so they, they have difficulty sort of getting used to things, but at the same time, they've brought something of the fantastic with them. I, I would like to see that. It, it feels like it would make a lot of sense regarding the decisions as to who they are. 
I also like the fact that you then, because it's it's not just the same as bringing forward Captain America, because ultimately Captain America is displaced from a point where it was like, okay, Hitler, now no Hitler. Well, whatever else has gone wrong, <laughs> that's an improvement. Whereas the Fantastic Four are coming from an era of reaching for the moon yeah. to an era of ass in it. Yeah, effectively they're coming from the era of the original Star Trek when it was like, we can go out and explore vast new untamed worlds and they're now at a place where no one wants to go to the moon or, or Mars in particular and they're like, there's just rocks there and it's like, well no, you're thinking of the negative zone in Josh Trank's uh, Fan Forstick. It's not the rocks, it's the journeying out exactly. that's the important Although thing. Although I will just add that is, at this particular junction in history, NASA have got the Orion program going on at the moment, which is going to involve trying to set up habitats on the moon, which they are hoping to have in place by the end of this decade. Yeah, okay. But, and I've said this before, specifically on our Buzz Lightyear show, it's got to be both. We've got to fix our shit whilst thinking about journeying out there. Because ultimately, otherwise, we just bring all of our stupid problems with us and only the billionaires get to go. And we get to wherever we're going, and then we fuck up all the resource management there too. Bingo. Doom. Doom has to be terrifying yet captivating. He needs to be like Bane meets Doctor Strange. Theatrical and passionate with an incredible booming voice. Everything about him needs to be solo movie level A-list and not just the dude who's pissed at Reed Richards and you don't just stick him in your first movie as, oh, the, the nemesis of the Fantastic Four is always Doctor Doom. All four movies Doctor Doom's been in and he's never really made an impression. This is a twofold crime. On the one hand, you're denying the Fantastic Four any kind of variety of villains. Mole Man, The Wizard, Psycho Man, Terax, Annihilus, Puppet Master, The High Evolutionary. <laughs> Not that kind of high, Ben. Kurgo, Impossible Man, Red Ghost, The Mad Thinker and His Awesome Android, Rama Tut, Molecule Man, Hatemonger, he's a purple dude from the KKK, by the way, Quiet Man, and Sue Storm's very own Dark Phoenix, Malice. All of these villains have potential, especially if you can think round Paste Pot Pete and turn him into a trapster that would actually cause real damage. But the second crime is, of course, selling short maybe the greatest comic villain who ever lived. It would have been the Joker, but he's now overexposed. Likewise Magneto and Green Goblin. And through his underexposure, Doctor Doom takes that title. The take on him in the... Mark Wade. He's written Superman before. Right, so the take on him in, in Mark Wade's run that you gave me to read, that I think is my favourite take on Doom that I've seen. <laughs> because the embracing of magic as a, an enhancement to the science that he already knows emphasises this feel that he is Reed's opposite number and especially on the heels of uh, how he'd manifested in the Morrison story where he literally mocks up the fact that he is an alternative take on Reed, Reed gone bad. Yeah, so he rules his own country, Latveria, and he favours gothic castles, traps and mad science. He needs to be entertaining ultimately, scary but entertaining and also a guy that you kind of want to keep around. Mm -hmm. 
He's called Victor. They called him Victor for a reason. Yeah. Marvel need to not be scared that his mask, his cloak, his cowl, and his armor are too ostentatious for real life. Don't go the Street Fighter route of, or worse, Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li, where Bison is just a businessman. <laughs> We've got to figure out a realistic way and reason for him to put these things on, otherwise it's way too silly. And it's like, no, just let him wear that stuff. Embrace them. Bob suggested that it be a uh, one person in the suit where another person provides the voice and ultimately you never need to see his face. And I suppose they could flash back and, and recast as someone else as the young Doom. They've done that with various other villains before, including Sauron. The person I picked for uh, Doom's voice is John Noble, whom you may remember also in Lord of the Rings, played Denethor in Return of the King. You think you are wise, Mithrandir. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. Do you think the eyes of the White Tower are blind? I have seen more than you know. With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor. And with your right, you would seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes. Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north, last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. The rule of Gondor is mine, and no others. Also of Fringe and The Boys. He is admittedly 74. So Marvel probably won't go with this because it's like, look, you're 74, you're probably not going to be around in 20 years' time and we need Doctor Doom for a long, long time. But one of the reasons to go with him is because he has a Shakespearean presence to him. And then all you have to do is lower the voice on that. You lower the pitch and then suddenly you have a big, deep, booming voice. Somebody who can be dripping with menace, but at the same time can kind of draw the audience in. Somebody Shakespearean. And for that, absolutely John Noble. What are you thinking? I might need to go and get myself a drink. <laughs> Why? <laughs> that was... Wow. <laughs> that was a demo. <laughs> he played Unicron in uh, Transformers Prime, and Unicron is effectively Galactus. So if nothing else... He could play Galactus. Megatron. Unicron. I do not understand. Why am I not one with the Allspark? Do I yet live? You do not, yet you cannot join the Allspark because my lifeblood once flowed through your veins. Dark Energon. It binds you to my anti-spark. Optimus Prime used the Matrix of Leadership to imprison you within the Earth's core. So how is it that you speak to me now? The foolish Prime rendered only my material form dormant. But my energy form was roused from slumber when I sensed the awakening of an ancient rival across the cosmos. Primus. So it would seem that Optimus succeeded in restoring Cybertron after my demise. 
I now wish to finish what I began eons ago, and for that, my anti-spark requires a vessel. So, I will live again? Only to serve me. Your husk will simply be an instrument of my will. There is one slight hitch in the plan of getting a physical actor to play Doctor Doom and a voice actor to perform him vocally, a la Darth Vader with David Prowse in the suit, James Earl Jones inhabiting that voice, Bob Anderson doing stunts, and Sebastian Shaw or Hayden Christensen when he's unmasked, or indeed the composite character of The Mandalorian. What's the key difference between Doctor Doom's mask and Vader's and Mando's? His eyes. When Tony Stark's Iron Man helmet is open, he's Tony Stark. When that visor comes down and his eyes glow, he's Iron Man. This is why Spider-Man is almost always unmasked in some way during the final dramatic showdown. We have to connect with the human being that Spider-Man is, beyond the superhero. Virtually every single panel that has Doctor Doom in it since the 1960s has had Doom's eyes on show. That's how he's drawn. That's how he connects with us. That's how we're reminded that there's a man in there. In Fanforstic, they replaced those very expressive eyes full of rage, cold fury, austerity, smidgen of pomposity, ambition, vulnerability. They replace those with these pinpricks of green light that express absolutely nothing aside from Doom's inhumanity. He was a robot, a Doom bot, like he's used to pretend to be him in the comics for decades. How could you miss that? Catastrophic failure in adaptation. You give him glowing Iron Man eyes, you lose something crucial. But there has to be a valid connection, something that feels entirely authentic between the eyes expressing themselves along with all the physicality of his body language that's why you get a physical genius like Doug Jones to play the Silver Surfer while Lawrence Fishburne who was originally going to voice Galactus provided his vocals seamlessly it needs to be done in a way where we feel like the voice and the eyes belong to the same man and that is tricky as hell all men, even the noblest, are driven by the same basic impulses. The sweet smile of the peace activist hides his raging need to make war on the makers of war. Behind every selfless act, behind every example of so-called heroism, there lies the craving for validation and the status in the eyes of others. Is it only the lessons of our experience which make monsters of us, or saints? We shall see. For now, experience itself is open to manipulation. Now human lives and histories are simply pawns in the great game of dominion.
Alicia Masters, very important. This is Ben Grimm's blind girlfriend who's been around since almost the very beginning. Portrayed rather well by Kerry Washington in the mid-2000s Fantastic Fours. Uh, Nando speculated maybe she should be played by a blind actress. Absolutely. Nando, I think, did this before we'd seen Echo in Hawkeye. Alicia needs to be played by somebody who we haven't really seen before, but uh, is an actress, is blind, and is absolutely capable of bonding with Seth Rogen's uh, Ben Grimm and just has a really great chemistry with him. I feel like a lot of people who like fun would have great chemistry with Seth Rogen, or whoever they get to play Ben. Namor, traditionally in the comics, has the hots for Sue and Again, this was referenced rather heavily in the Grant Morrison story, 1234, where he's just like, Sue, come away with me to the briny depths. And he, he tends to sort of be who she thinks about maybe going to when, her, when she's having husband problems. So, in whatever film, if they're going to do a film where Reed's off partying with a whole bunch of other Reeds on the Council of Reeds, if Sue's like, so, what do you got, Namor? Tell me all about you. <laughs> Your, your life under the sea that you got to offer me. That gives Sue something to stress over. And actually, maybe, like, she could look at it and go, I might actually improve two worlds if I do this. Shuri decided against it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Sue has to. And if we keep that on the line, I, I feel like it, the Sue we're describing would have great chemistry with our Namor. I do quite like the idea of a scene where she agrees to go with Namor at least for a brief period of time, mm. but because she can create herself a force field bubble, she could actually enter the mm. water of her own volition and have more control over going with him mm. than anybody else who is going to be dependent on whatever technology he can offer. Maya will help point out, uh, nobody ever gets the bends in Marvel films. Well, in and Maya was there. Maya could have gone, hey, is anyone going to get the bends? No, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would assume she was with a diving team. And they were also all going, no one's getting the bends around here, are they? No, no one's, no one's lungs are leap, leaping up through their throat. <laughs> okay, uh, the idea of Galactus being brought in. important thing to remember when bringing Galactus to the screen. He is a character you can try to hit. Bring your hardest punches, bring Hulk, get all the Avengers, all the X-Men, Guardians, you name it. Hammer him from every possible angle. Since day one, in the original coming of Galactus, issues 48, 49, and 50 by Lee and Kirby, this is a character you do not beat with a Zack Snyder punching contest. This is Cthulhu. We are but ants to him. 
Zack Snyder never understood the fourth world or dark side, any of that. This is not a power fantasy, this is about something more. The only way to repel Galactus is to communicate. And he does not strike a bargain easily. He is motivated by a desperate cellular need for survival. So whatever you have to tell him, when it concerns please don't eat my planet, better be goddamn good. Bob suggested this should be a uh, part of a big crossover event, so get the whole MCU together to try and repel Galactus. I kind of really like that in terms of what was established in issue 262, the trial of Reed Richards by alien species furious that he has allowed Galactus to live on several occasions when he could have ended him. He's not from our universe, he's from a previous universe that was experiencing a big crunch folding in on itself. He was a mortal being who wound up in that singularity and gestated for billions of years, hatching out as Galactus. His feeding on planets is not evil, and he is now part of the ecosystem of our universe. He's no more evil than a shark is evil, but unlike a shark, he can ponder. He can get lonely. He can ask himself if there is more to existence than merely existence. And someone who has a line, someone who gets bored, someone who can be negotiated with, whom you can form alliances with, or who could become a deadly enemy, and an insurmountable force, that's a character you want to keep in play. And a long time from now, maybe billions of years, maybe merely thousands, maybe merely dozens, a being may exist in the universe who survives its folding in on itself and perpetuates to the next form of existence. If this is the cycle of the stars, who are we to bring to a close possibly the only singular example of perpetual motion. However, I do feel like, much like Thanos, he needs to be introduced and shown and talk in other movies yeah. before the big Set one. Set him up as an inevitability. Mm. We see him coming and we know, by virtue of how huge he is and how just unstoppable he is, that once mm. Galactus is on a set path, he's not going to divert from it. Absolutely. That. However, that should not be a Fantastic Four movie, but the Fantastic Four should be in it. That should be the Silver Surfer movie. Directed by Denis Villeneuve. School of Movies is kept in motion by the powers cosmic of our Patreon and the many good people who can be found on there. And our top tier sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, 
Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Haskell, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. To that end, you make Galactus the be-all, end-all of that film as the driving force. And the Fantastic Four can guest star and be reasons for people to go, let's all go see the Silver Surfer film. We all love the Fantastic Four because they've done exactly what Alex and Sharon said. (laughs) Or some variation thereof. This has to be a family film series. Nobody has ever attempted Franklin Richards and his sister Valeria, like I said, but that's why you do exactly that. Jump over Reed and Sue's courtship, marriage and pregnancy. Feasibly, you could start the kids fairly young, like five or six, because we need them to still be young for ten years worth of cinematic appearances. This is where the comics and Incredibles have the advantage. The realities of relying on kids this young for this much of a film series are problematic. Billy Batson's actor still hasn't made his second appearance. He is now 20 years old. Yikes. For that reason, Marvel may have to recast a few times, but it is a huge aspect of Marvel's first family that these previous films, Josh Trank's version, Tim Story's two versions, even the humble 1994 version, just would never have even thought of. Should we have kids? Nah, never work with kids. This is a family, guys. They were all so fixated on establishing how to get the four from regular humans to superheroes that they forgot our reasons to engage with them in the first place. The original comic kicked off the Silver Age in 1961. Reed and Sue were married by 65 and Franklin entered the scene in 68, though his sister Valeria wasn't around until 1999. But that is still 54 years of being a mom and pop outfit. Do not try to make a film for the year it is being made. Chasing trends like dinosaurs in 1994, or flip phones and the war on terror in 2005, or being visually identical to Michael Bay's Transformers in 2007, or The Dark Knight in 2009, or your own separate cinematic universe in 2015, or a massive interdimensional crossover with every Disney character from the animated canon in 2025. I suspect that many years from now, if they do eventually get the balance right, maybe not on the first try, maybe not fifth time lucky, maybe not sixth time lucky, but seventh? We shall see. We will be able to look back on that great Fantastic Four film and recognize that it is at once a mind-expanding journey through space, time, and many more dimensions as Lee and Kirby originally conceived and was picked up by so many writers with such gusto over the decades hence. It could well be a blockbuster that could genuinely get audiences thinking, but harnessing Kennedy-era space exploration in opposition with the disillusionment of the 70s and the 2010s, it could be inspiring, giving us a now rare glimpse of a bright future, a bright past, and a bright present. My God, do we need that right now. But for any of this to stick, this also has to be a story about 
family at its core, an irregular family rather than the nuclear standard, and one that embraces the MCU as a solid foundation, a rock for everyone to gravitate around, a fun bunch of good people that we actually relish spending time with. And to that end, I would actually suggest they don't say one particular word in this series. Family. Because the word has become devalued. Just like the word magic was by Disney many, many years ago. Remember the magic. The word family now gets fucking shoved into things. The same as the word hope. Like uh, in the otherwise really great and enjoyable film that Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Netflix, Leonardo says, We've still got a ninja's greatest weapon. Hope. And I was like, that is not the ninja's greatest weapon. <laughs> you forget caltrops. You spit those in, in the face. face. <laughs> but specifically, you can't just say hope. Every five fucking blockbusters, every three fucking blockbusters will get by with hope. Because if you say hope enough times, people are like, fuck you and your hope. We have to have hope. The one thing they can never kill is our hope. And can I have you say that line one more time? More hopeful. Um, yeah, okay. Our friends can come back from the dead if we all clap our hands together and believe. Because I just thought she was um, like a jaded kind of rebel fugitive um, living on the other side of the law. I guess I, I was wondering where all this optimism comes from. It seems like she gets it very early on and then continues to have it no matter what. I like it. It's good. Santa will come if we just believe in the magic of Christmas. Hope is the crystal that powers the death star of our dreams. Just, are most of these lines about hope? Uh, there's one at the end that isn't. Hurry. Get to the ship. It commodifies hope. It rings hollow if you lean on it like a button. You have to mean it. I say that as someone who has spent nine years writing a book series about coming back from loss. Hope is a finite, fragile, delicate thing that has to be nurtured and taken care of. You can't take it for granted. You can't synthesize it. Using it to manipulate people is a crime against the soul. So it is with family. Family should only be a positive thing, but we know how much negative comes with that as well. Family can be used to abuse us, manipulate us. For some of us, our families hurt us inside with no knowledge that they're doing it. We hurt ourselves on their behalf. The F word can be a thing of spikes, traps, resentment, disapproval, frustration. Ergo, when you say the word, it has to mean an unconditional embrace. And because Fast and Furious have pressed the family button too many times, it's devalued the word and even potentially the concept. So to be able to get it back, you have to somehow get through that whole movie radiating a family atmosphere without ever leaning on the secret weapon of saying, it's about family. Now it's clobbering time. I, somebody said in a podcast I was listening to the other day, actually, that hope is not something you have, it's something you do. 
I would say the same for being a superhero. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And let us extend our long, stretchy arms and encircle you in an unconditional embrace. One that is warm, strong, and protective. That is getting too touchy-feely. Let's have some more music. The irony of the Fantastic Four movie is that it has been seen by more people than probably would have ever seen it in its initial release, had it been released. I was at, at a party, and this guy comes up to me and goes, he goes, you look so familiar to me, I know you, I know you, and, and throughout the party he was trying to figure it out, and finally he comes up to me and he goes, you're Alicia. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I go, how do you know? Did you work on the movie? He goes, no, I saw the movie. I'm like, where? I haven't even seen the movie. I am a writer. I've seen scripts be written and then thrown away. And this is the equivalent of that. This was just a draft of the film that was tossed away. And it's written off on production cost. Marvel does have the movie. They own it, you know, that it's, for all we know, I think the comment from uh, the fellow who ran Marvel or runs Marvel is that, you know, yeah, we burned it or it got burned or something. But um, it's probably, we would imagine, in some film vault somewhere. Can't imagine it, you know, burned it. Ding dong. My guess is it's somewhere that they wouldn't be that cruel as to demolish a piece of celluloid, regardless of what's on it. Because if you believe that they have even an ounce of filmmaker inside their blood, they're not gonna destroy film. You know, because that's not what we do. People don't destroy film if you're a filmmaker. You try to preserve film. So my guess is that somewhere that negative is still preserved and tucked away somewhere. I would hope. doesn't matter. It's about giving this film its third act, and I'm sure it'll happen. And I hope that, um, that my 12-year-old uh, grandchildren are old enough in the early 21st century that it does happen, <laughs> that uh, they'll remember that that was your great-grandfather. Start a